Please state your name for the record. I'm Chris Parrish. I'm Brent Simmons. You're listening to The Record. The Record brings you the stories you should know about the Mac and iOS development community. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Cool. Well, it's good to have you here. Well, of course, you're a host, so naturally you're here. <laughs> so it's just the two of us. Why, why, why don't we have another person? Well, it turned out we you know, interviewed all these people and realized, hey, we ourselves might make good subjects for interviews. So uh, we decided to do a couple specials. This is the first of two. Uh, in this one, I will be interviewing Chris. So Chris, you're a, you're a developer, I understand. Uh, you must have gotten started somehow, someplace, somewhen. And my guess, pulling, pulling the name of a state out of a hat, is Oklahoma. Yep, that is uh, very true. All, all of the above true. Developer, uh, I got started at some point, and that start was in the state of Oklahoma. Um, that's where I grew up and lived for uh, first 22, 23 years of my life. Uh, and I got started pretty early. I was a little kid when uh, I first got a computer, hankering for getting a computer. So was that the 70s, early 80s? Uh, so that would have been, I was uh, probably like right at the beginning of the 80s. Mm -hmm. How old was I then? So how old are you in third grade? That's what I remember the grades more than the years for yeah, whatever right, reason. Sure. So what is that, know, like something eight, like eight or something? Nine, yeah. yeah, so it was probably right about 80 is probably mm -hmm. right. 79, okay. 80 was, uh, of course, uh, my motivator was video games. Yeah, right. Like every right, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, and I remember specifically what I hadn't really thought a whole lot about computers, though it was something my grandfather was always into on the side. But it was something I hadn't really. I'd seen him kind of diddling around on various computing kind of devices and programmable calculators, and at his business, he had an interesting, I guess, what was probably termed a personal computer, but it was big old thing. Hmm. Uh, but I didn't really spend any time messing around on it. So it's cool, though, that you, you had family who were already into yeah, computing. Yeah, he was definitely, yeah, he was definitely, yeah, he was kind of a mechanic, engineer type person. And uh, he worked on cars and he was interested in technology. That was hmm. the two things okay. that he did all the time. But he ran a print shop. That's what he did. All right. So this all goes against the stereotype of Oklahoma. It is. Fields yeah. of green yeah. and corn and everything. Yeah. So there are technically savvy yeah. people there, even in the my grandfather was interesting. He, you know, he worked for, <clears throat> from what I understand, I've never really, you know, sometimes legends start when you're a kid and you, and you don't, you just take them for granted. You don't go look them up later on Wikipedia to shatter the <laughs> illusions, right? But so <clears throat> he got started um, when he was young, working for the company that I was told invented the shopping cart. Now I think they made some other things too, potentially. Geez, you know, um, after the shopping cart, I would have stopped. Right. That's <laughs> yeah. a lot of money. Yeah. And so he uh, he worked on like their assembly line and on the machines, keeping them running that bent metal and forged shopping mm, carts. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so that was where. The good old days when kinda, they would still get rusty. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'm sure. Yeah. I can only imagine. Yeah, I don't. I never. That was so before my time that I didn't really see. Uh, there's like one picture of a newspaper clipping where he and, he and a colleague had invented some new machine and. It made the company um, a lot of money. And the inter the thing that was interesting about that story was, uh, from what I understand, he had one of those clauses in his employment contract with them where anything he did, even on his own time, was essentially owned by the company. I think mm -hmm. they had to offer him a dollar for it or something. There was some right, sure. right. token amount of money. And um, I think it was interesting because- Which in those days, yeah. a dollar would buy you a homestead. In yeah, Oklahoma, exactly so, right. That yeah, was, it wasn't nothing. Yeah, yeah that was- uh, that was a windfall, but he, uh, 
I think that led him to being fairly disappointed in that company. I think they were called Folden Carrier or something like that. And um, uh, it wasn't too long after that that he started going down the entrepreneurial route. Uh, I think that that was the event that sort of sent him down a a different path. But yeah, so I had this, I had this grandfather who I owe a lot to. I I can imagine it may come up multiple times in the conversation today, but um, he was definitely interested in technology, but I hadn't quite caught the the computer bug, but I did enjoy like the Atari and Pong, you know, Mm -hmm. I think he had a Pong machine and I had an Atari uh, 2600 game system. And that was, you know, amazing. Loved it. And my dad was, uh, and family, he ran a clothing store. He was the manager of a clothing store and he had uh, a lot of employees and he always got along well with most of his employees and they would do things together. And one of his employees had a couple of, um, teenage and young adult sons, one of which who still lived with her. And my parents were over at their house doing like a weekly card game kind of thing, you know, Mm -hmm. spaghetti and cards and Mm -hmm. yelling and arguing about Carter and (laughs) politics. Right. You know, Uh and, uh, I remember that uh, Pinochle and Republic. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. This was this was the, at the point in which my dad was. This was probably the beginning of the end of him ever being a Democrat because I mm-hmm. I can only put these together now from my uh, foggy child memory. But I recall that he um, he was a supporter for Carter and everyone else wasn't. Mm-hmm. And I remember he had a little pin on. This is right near the same event that I'm telling you about. It may have been the same night. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I remember like someone taking his pin and stomping on it. And Jeez. I think I think he was against the tide at that yeah. point, and he he switched yeah. allegiances shortly thereafter. Yeah. Um, I assume. I, who knows if that's true? But that's what it seemed like. Um, so her son had gotten an Apple II mm-hmm. somehow. I'm not sure exactly how he acquired it. And he'd moved back. He'd moved out and moved back in for a little while. And so he was there, and I was. They were all playing cards and doing adult things, and I was trying to entertain myself. And uh, he he was like, "Hey, come check this out." And he had you know a binder full of floppy disk. Oh yeah. Of software that you know, probably all of it pirated. I don't know. The old, you know, right? Five and a quarter inch. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So people would have those little, um, you know, uh, like almost like how people store playing cards these days or whatever, mm-hmm. like a little thing you could slide the floppies in and flip through a binder full of them. And he was showing me all the cool software he had on his computer and a lot of games, and there were games that were unlike anything I'd ever played on uh, an Atari, right? Like. Um, some game called like Odyssey, the complete adventure. And it just had this depth where it had a little bit of story and complexity and there was more text to it. And now admittedly by today's standards, there's nothing there, but compared to what we were playing on the Atari, I was like, wow. And the graphics were better than what you could get on the Atari. And I was stunned uh, at how cool that was. And so I was naive kid. And uh, I remember probably it was the very next day uh, going to my grandfather. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and, um, I remember going to him and saying, you know, I saw this computer. It's amazing. You're going to love this. We got to get one. Not knowing that, you know, it was probably in the neighborhood three to $4,000. And it was a huge investment. I'm all like, we just, we got to get one of these computers. And my grandfather was kind of person. I think of him kind of like, probably like uh, Marco is a bit like researches the crap out of anything before he does it. Right. right, You know, every detail. So some months passed, maybe a month or longer, Mm -hmm. two months in which, uh, he started researching personal computers. Maybe he'd already been doing it before that, but it wasn't too long after that he got an Apple II. Mm-hmm. And so I would go over to my grandparents' Clearly house. Clearly the best choice. Yeah, yeah. It was was uh, it was amazing. It was fun. Mm-hmm. And I would go over to his house. Well, about once a week, I'd usually visit them and mess around with it. And after he'd had it for a little while, a couple more months, he was like, well, why don't you take it like every other week and take it home with you and then bring it back and leave it with me? And it wasn't too long until that turned into the computer just stayed with me. Mm. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> nice. <laughs> like, 
Yeah. So, and then, yeah, that's what, that's, that's what really, you know, I was lucky there weren't, I mean, you can imagine in those days, not everybody had a personal computer in their house. It was kind of a rare thing to have. Right. And so I was pretty lucky to have that sitting there for me to tinker on, you know, anytime I felt like it. Yeah. I remember being, uh, even through high school, one of the rare families that had an actual computer at home. Yeah. Yeah, there, and there was a pretty legitimate question, like, what do you do with that thing? Like, yeah, you know. That's that's what all of our relatives yeah. would ask. <laughs> right? Come over, aunts and uncles, yeah. grandparents, whatever. It's like, wow, yeah. cool toy. But... Yeah. I mean, we didn't have a printer, so you couldn't even yeah. be like, you know, I write papers on it, you know? Yeah, I mean, we, right, I could sure. write something and it's stuck on a floppy disk that only someone with the same program on another Apple II yeah. can read, right? You know, I think like... we eventually got the Epson MX80. Yes. Yeah, printer, I won one in a, a contest great, a couple really? years later. I don't even remember what the contest was. It was like, throw your name in a fishbowl kind of thing raffle right? kind of yeah right. yeah and that's how i finally got a printer was uh i think it was, was so one. noisy <laughs> it was. <laughs> yeah those were amazing ah uh, yeah so workhorse so it was a great printer yeah, yeah it must right? cost like 700 bucks like, oh, oh it was super problems. expensive yeah. that's why i didn't have a printer i remember yeah. i had to scrounge because i won the printer but didn't have a uh, must have been parallel right parallel mm-hmm. port and i didn't have a mm. you know apple II didn't have a parallel port you had to buy a card to pop in it right? right you know you had those seven slots i guess it was and so i had to come up with like 70 bucks to get a cheap parallel of course, printer yeah. port that i could add to the computer so i could print <clears throat> from the three programs that I it's had. funny though you know that that old printer was primitive by today's standards but yeah. in terms of like uh industrial quality i mean yeah, solid, that was right? a real yeah. solid thing yes yeah. today's so much of today's stuff is like plastic yeah stuff. and even the yeah like the plastic was just kind of heftier mm-hmm. right you know yeah. i mean the things were made often of plastics but they kind of had solid some sort of yeah, yeah ability to last more than yeah, yeah. The, all the printers i have in my house are just like they feel like paper almost yeah, right. <laughs> plastic. yeah. it's like a power supply somehow weighing the whole thing down and not destroying it's kind of amazing mm-hmm. so you so you got to because your grandfather, you got to have a, a computer at home, and yeah. how long before you were starting to do programming? It was it was pretty close. I remember the the one event that sticks out in my mind is sort of like giving me the hint that you could program these things. Like I, I probably did just mostly play games on it, um, and it, you know, Apple II, you buy it, and it came with some amount of software on disk, and some of them were little basic programs you could run. I'm, I'm sure mm-hmm. I tinkered with them a little bit, but I didn't really think about that too much. But I remember playing that same game that I saw at my parents' friend's house. And uh, it had a bug and it crashed into like the basic prom uh-huh. <laughs> I was playing it. And uh, I was like, oh, I've seen this before. I could say list, mm-hmm. you know, and I could see the, the contents of the program. Wow. And I started realizing that like you could monkey with some numbers in there and change things that happened in the game. Uh-huh. And then I kind of got the idea oh, you know, you could probably make your own games. Like that's probably, it's probably not beyond the reach of a person who knows how to program Uh to make a video game instead of it being some wizards off in California somewhere that are enchanting video games out of thin air. It's like, oh no, you can program computers and make video games. (laughs) I think I want to do that actually. So um, that did send me down a path of of learning basic and the limitations of basic pretty quick. Oh, Uh, sure, yeah. You couldn't really do high-res graphics. The Apple IIs had that, dual mode graphics you could have the lowest graphics that had mm-hmm. a lot of colors but real chunky big blocks uh or you could have uh, the, yeah, the blocks were as big as your fingertips they were huge yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, that was yeah. essentially a pixel yeah. yeah yeah the pixel is a light bright had better resolution than yeah than the <laughs> res mode on the apple too <clears throat> but yeah so then you know that was that was quickly like i remember 
making some attempt at making a Star Wars-like game where you're flying down a tunnel, mm-hmm. shooting boat. Or I actually had one. There was a commercial. There probably was. It's probably what inspired me. I probably saw something like that and yeah. was like, oh, was I could like kind of imitate that. Wireframing, basically. Yeah, this was, yeah. and I was doing it in low-res graphics, so it looked really, uh, okay. really terrible, right? Oh, so. Yeah. So then I was like, I got to figure out the higher res graphic stuff. And that's when I started discovering that anyone who did that, it was uh, assembly or machine language that was really required to get the performance you needed to pull off the high res graphic stuff. I mean, there's, I think there was some way to do the high res stuff in basic, but I just don't, I don't recall it being versatile enough that you could really do anything significant with it. Yeah. I think it was there technically, but you just couldn't get things to happen fast enough. Yeah. It seems likely. And so, so then that started me down the road of, well, that's the other thing, you know, it's like you had basic built in, but there wasn't like an assembler, right? Right. Yeah. You could pop into, I think they called it the monitor and you could type in hex and yeah. it would disassemble it. It would show you the machine instructions when you listed it. Um, but that was, you know. A bit primitive. A, yeah, it was a huge <laughs> leap for my little, this yeah, is probably, yeah. you know, fifth grade mind or something around that time. Like yeah. I I was struggling to understand assembly language and to build something, a structured program. But, well, you know, I poked at it here and there and did things. And I remember at some point, um, someone came up with a graphics passage, package. I can't remember the name of that company. They made a couple of graphic packages for the uh, Apple II in the early days. And what they would, you would draw your stuff and it was almost like, uh, I guess I didn't know at the time, but now it was like they was always stored in a vector representation. So it was a sequence mm-hmm. of instructions okay. of how to recreate what you had drawn. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you drew an oval and a square, and then it would be like, oh, draw an oval, draw a square, instead mm-hmm. of storing a bitmap. And they would allow you to draw the stuff in this app, and then it would kick out a little bit of code that you could include in your programs to recreate that on demand. Hmm. Um, and so I remember getting that to make an adventure game, you know, the classic sort of, we had text adventure games and I monkeyed around with those, but then popular in those days also were text adventure games that would have a picture for each scene. So, you know, every, Uh every place you went in the game would have some static picture. Sometimes it might have some really bad animation in it or something, you know? Uh, So I remember there, there was a graphics mode where you had graphics, like the top two thirds of the screen and then text underneath. Yeah, that was, yeah, you could definitely, yeah, you could put like maybe four lines down there or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was real common in these adventure games. Yeah, all capitals. Yeah, 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 it was rough. So, yeah, so then I started making like some game like Ninja Quest, I think was the one I was all hip to make. I'd had it all flow charted out. Mm -hmm. Then it, you know, one of those things, like like my entire life has been these stalled projects of, yeah, it'll be great (laughs) and getting two thirds of the way, one third of the way through. Yeah, yeah, like like many programs, I'm sure. Exactly. One thing I remember a lot from those days. I wonder if it's true for you. Is there was an awful lot of pen and pencil and paper involved oh, in man, programming? I, I, I love graph paper. I yeah, had oh, giant yeah. stacks of graph paper. Totally, yeah. yeah, yeah, just all kinds of notes, drawings, mm-hmm. flowcharts, yep. um, uh, code architecture. Right. I mean, you know, I had a uh, there was always a, a, no, a notebook by my side yeah. when I was working. And yeah, today, right? I actually have like a little thing for quick notes, but yeah. not like a permanent like lab notebook. No, I know. I kind of miss that. Really like, because uh, yeah. I, I used to get excited about sharpening pencils and having that paper there. Yeah. yeah. These days, you know, when I, it's funny when I need to sketch something, I actually tend to grab my iPad and use the paper app. Oh, okay. I usually have like a stylus or something sitting nearby and I'll just, cause usually it's just to work out some math or some visual representation of something mm-hmm. like, you know, and uh, I'll just sketch it out temporarily on the iPad mm-hmm. and uh, that kind of taken the place of all those reams of paper. I remember graph yeah. paper being so important because just like drawing sprites, you know, I was doing a lot of graphic stuff. And mm-hmm, so right. 
had to kind of turn the sprites into you know bits and memory so i remember right. having like a system where i would draw it on the graph paper and then convert that into hexadecimal right you know, from bits okay. to hexadecimal yeah. and then take the hexadecimal and type it in and uh -huh. that would be how i get my sprite you know it's not like i was drawing it in a graphics package i was just mm. plotting it out on graph paper it was tedious it's amazing how much flipping time we had as kids it's unbelievable <laughs> so at some point you probably did you get a book on 6502 assembler and i then did yeah actually you got an assembler program i did i was i'm probably living the karma of this still today um i was a, a huge software pirate i mean i never i don't know bought like probably one tenth of the software i owned and i do remember you know getting a couple of different assemblers was it called Merlin, maybe? Was it the big one for the Apple II at the time? I remember having that, and I think I got a Pascal compiler at some point. Um, I never had that. Back in the day, it was interesting because people would meet up to just trade software, right? Like, yeah, I mean, well, it would I be like, well, yeah. buy a pack of floppy disk, which was more mm. than barely what I could afford, right? You know, I mean, floppy yeah. disks were not and cheap, spend right? Spend the afternoon coffee. Yeah, just like, so yeah. Slow. Yeah, and that actually probably honed my programming a lot too because. Uh, Learning how to defeat the copy protection on things was um, always an exercise in, you know, debugging essentially, mm -hmm, right? right? I mean, we would have these apps that would, um, I think the, one of the big ones was called Locksmith. And uh, I remember Locksmith. Right? Yeah. And it had a mode, like it would be able to break some things just because they kind of build a, almost like virus software probably does today, like just mm -hmm. a repertoire of things to look for. And right. you could just try to to break the copy protection because it's known. But um it, they also had a uh, like a bootloader. So basically, it would step in and be the very first thing that ran on the computer and then let you single step through whatever your disk was that was booting up. And so you could just see yeah. every instruction it executed from the very first one. Mm -hmm. So if you were patient enough, you could step through that and figure out what kind of tricky stuff it was doing right. to try to uh, defeat the copy or to provide some sort of copy protection. And then mm -hmm. once you found it, you, there were known techniques for, you know, getting rid of those things and... Uh, it was, you know, we had it kind of in contrast to the, what people have today. We had complete control over the computer from the yeah, moment right, you turned it sure. on, right? There was yeah. the operating system was flimsy layer, right? Yeah, I mean, right. it wasn't a lot of operating system there, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's like you could just step in and do whatever you wanted, you know. I, most, most I do miss that in, in a way. Yeah. Not that I, you know, not that yeah. I would even ever use it, but I just love the yeah. idea. Like, you own this machine. Yeah. Totally, yeah. It was, know, it was, do, it's well, entirely malleable. One of my favorite things about those old Apple IIs, the one that I got still came with, I think it was called the Apple II technical manual. And mm -hmm. the back of it, it was a spiral bound small notebook, but the back of it was a giant fold out schematic yeah, of I the circuit. That well, board. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then that's, I had some crazy notions about how integrated chips work, which was nothing close to reality. But I do remember going to Radio Shack and buying chips and switching them out for the chips that were in my <laughs> Apple II that, wow. of course, was never met with success. But I no. was all like, you know, oh, there's a speech synthesis chip at Radio Shack. Let's see what happens if I plug that into I one of the sockets. Surely, surely that'll work. Yeah. Like in retrospect, I'm like, man, I was really naive about that stuff. Like, it's a good thing I went to school at some point. It ought to work that way. I got a speech. It would have been cool it if it was. Yeah. All that monkeying around too, you know, I mean, I made that Apple II last what seems like forever. I don't know how long it was, but it was certainly many years. And uh, <clears throat> I, because of uh, all the monkeying around, taking it apart and, and shit, I had broken a pen on one of the ROM chips. So mm. uh, probably, I don't know if we have a lot of young listeners, but I mean, you know, back in these days, there was chips that ROM chips that contained the kind of critical software to get your machine up and, and right. running. Right. You know, um, like the Apple software stored in ROM and mm -hmm. a bunch of system level kind of routines or 
hard baked into read these only memory. Read only memory, yeah. right? And so there was I'm kind of six four ROM chips on the Apple II, and they were pretty mm-hmm. obvious where they were. And I had pulled one out a couple of times and finally broke the pen on it. The little pen, you know, mm-hmm. was, these were probably I don't know like 48, 60 pens on these chips, and I broke right. one of them, and the machine would no longer boot up. <laughs> and I was like sad i was like well how am i ever gonna have a computer again um so i was like well it's metal and aluminum foil is metal (laughs) (laughs) so i went to get some tin foil and shoved it in the hole where the broken pin was because there was a little stub of metal sticking off Uh, the chip that where the pin that had broken there was Uh a little bit of metal sticking off and i got it to where it would make enough contact and that chip still where I can't believe the tolerances. Wow. Like, you know, can, I could yeah. boot my Apple II. And every now and then it'd get hot and I'd have to stop working and I'd have uh. to get in there and kind of press that chip down <laughs> a little bit. This is the same computer that um, uh, I, uh, <laughs> my parents would take my computer away to, uh, to ground me. Right. right? Cause I, they knew this is the thing I spent a lot of my time doing. So this was an effective punishment. Mm. Um, so to uh, ensure this, for some geeks, punishment is you have to leave the house. You have to go exactly. out and play with your friends. Right, exactly. I was I was still pretty good about that. I would. It was sort of like I I really never slept. I think. Um, well, probably in the mornings. I would get up in the afternoons and go outside all day with my friends in mm-hmm. the neighborhood. And then as it got dark, then I would just come in and stay up all night on the computer. It was sure, kind of a nice yeah. binary sort of thing. So mm-hmm. I did get some actual outdoor experience, but uh, but my. The, not always. I mean, it was after school. My parents were working and they'd just leave me home alone. And they were like, well, how are we going to keep them off the computer for sure? I know we'll take the power cord, right? And mm-hmm. so um, just, you know, your regular three prong power cord on each end. Right. Uh, and <clears throat> what was interesting is around this same time, I had worn out the switch on the power supply for the computer. Okay. So I had taken the power supply apart. And I had just basically soldered the switch, the contacts of the switch permanently on. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, who cares? Don't need to switch it. I'll just unplug it to turn it off and on. And the way I would always do that would be to grab the cable where it plugged into the power supply on the back of the Apple II. Mm-hmm. So when they took the cable, I went into the garage and I found some like old coffee maker or something that had a cord on it. Mm-hmm. But it was not like kind that you could detach. It was right. it was permanently attached and I cut it off and I soldered like three alligator clips onto it and I could like <laughs> hook those alligator clips onto the uh, pins in the computer and then plug it into the wall. So I had fashioned myself a cord so I could compute. Probably, I probably <laughs> was probably playing wizardry or something. There's probably some right, game or right. Ultima I needed to play really bad in my mind. I think I had a modem at this time. So it could have been being online was important. Uh, right, sure. And um, <laughs> so... I, my habit that I had developed over the past couple of months was turn the computer off by grabbing the cord and unplugging it. So here I am with my friend over who lived down the road and uh, we're using the computer and I hear my parents come in and I'm like, oh God, I'm not supposed to be using the computer. Mm. So I just reached around, did the thing I'd been doing for months to turn off the computer, which uh-huh. was grab the cord, which was a bunch of open wires yeah. that were plugged into the wall. So <laughs> I got... A hell of a shock. Uh, I think my friend was exaggerating. He's like, your hair shot up. I'm like, I don't think my hair shot up. But I screamed <laughs> and there were red marks up my arm. And oh, man. He, he kicked me. He was all like, I didn't want to touch you. So I kicked you. you know, it's like I'm flying across the room. I'm screaming, arms burning. I'm like, ah, my parents are, what's wow. going on? Nothing. It's all good. Nothing to see here. <laughs> How are you? I had no idea computing would be so physically yeah, dangerous. Yeah, it's you know back yeah, in the day we really real had risk. to struggle for our computing. Yeah. 
It's amazing we survived that era. Yeah. Well, let's do the first of our sponsors. Let us thank uh, thank Tagcaster very much. Tagcaster from Moonrise Software. So if you go to moonrisesoftware.net, click on Tagcaster, you'll find their software. So what it is, it's, uh, it's a podcast player. And you might think, well, you had another pod- podcast player. I don't necessarily care about that. I barely even check those out anymore. Well, you should check out this one. And the reason why is because it has one really great idea, which is that it solves the age-old problem of, well, how do you link to some section of a podcast? Uh, what it does is it lets you make a clip. So you can make a clip of some duration of um, you know, something that you heard that you thought was cool, and then you can share that clip uh, via their service and get a URL to it. Give that URL to other people via Twitter, email, whatever you want. And so, yeah, so you can link to something you heard on this podcast or any other podcast. And that's, the software is called Tagcaster. It's available, it's free, it's on the App Store. I think there's a 99 cent annual subscription, so it's quite inexpensive. Uh, So check it out, moonrisesoftware.net. Click on Tagcaster, T-A-G-C-A-S-T-E-R. You know, Brett, one thing I thought was really cool about that app was uh, when I went to go check it out, it already knew what all my podcast subscriptions were, I think from using Apple's podcast app. So oh, that's nice. I launched it up and it was full of my podcast. Uh, and it was kind of cool. It was kind of neat to browse through the tags that people had published of just little blips of audio from mm-hmm. podcasts that was something they thought was kind of interesting. There was a couple of really good ones from our last record of the, I mean, last episode of the record with uh, with Mike Lee. There mm-hmm. were some neat ones in there. And I saw a good one from Incomparable with Jason Snow. Huh. It's cool oh, idea. that's cool. That, that episode with Mike certainly had a lot of yeah, quotable was, moments. Yeah, so many quotable moments. Surprise. Yeah, and I, I love that. You know, you know, when podcasting first came out, this was uh, considered by many to be a huge problem, you know, yeah. compared to blogging. But yeah, this guy just went right ahead and solved it. Yeah, so, that's awesome. It's love really it. cool. Anyway, thanks to Tagcaster. Back to Oklahoma. Yeah. So you're, you're a kid trying not to kill yourself with a computer. <laughs> I was uh, prone to accidents. I still some, am. At as, some point, yeah. you're getting, you're getting, um, you're getting out of Oklahoma, and maybe going to college. Yeah, it took a while. Well, what what happened along yeah. the way? I uh, I was really coasting through my last years in public education um, with no plan of what in the hell I was going to do. I just always assumed that. Well, I know a lot about computers, so surely there'll be something on the other side of this that works out for me. Mm. And I continue to make bad plans like that um, to this day, I swear. But uh, I didn't, I didn't really actively kind of take charge of where my life was going at that time. And um, in high school, I moved out of my house and barely made it through high school by the end, because once you don't have any sort of uh, supervision of someone writing you to get your ass to school on time Uh, and not get suspended for never going to school. Uh, you know, like it was, it was rough. So those, that last year, especially senior year, barely squeaked by, but I'd been lucky that I'd done well enough on standardized tests and stuff that schools approached me because I wouldn't have approached any schools. I think I would have probably been Mm. sitting there twiddling my thumbs, assuming that someone would take care of this for me like an idiot. And I hate to say it, but the standardized tests are like saviors for yeah. certain classes of people. Right, um, yeah. My, myself too. Like, yeah, my GPA was terrible, but my SATs were nearly perfect. Yeah, right, yeah. And so that generated enough 
interest in a few schools that, you know, start to come court you. Um, at this time, things were going really bad with my family. My parents were like separating and hmm. having financial issues. And so I'd assume they would be able to pay for college. That wasn't going to happen at that mm-hmm. point. Um, and then the University of Oklahoma came to me with like, hey, we'll pay for all your school. Nice and deal. I was like, that is very easy. I just uh-huh. go down the road <laughs> and uh, you'll pay for it. Maybe I should do that. Um, but I did make the terrible mistake of not really engaging fully in college life. And instead of like mm. going to the dorms and going through that process of being a first year college student, I just got an apartment with my girlfriend and my friend and lived near campus, uh, yeah. but not near enough. So you engaged fully with <laughs> right. beer and oh, whatever yeah. else. So. Oh, yeah. Like it was, I don't know if I ever went to class. I might have a couple of times. It was, it was bad. I mean, there were some classes I was motivated to go to, mm-hmm. um, but that was, that was just a dumb idea. Like, you know, trying to find parking, you know, uh, was always like enough to make me go, ah, screw it. I'm not gonna, yeah. not gonna go to that class today and getting up in the mornings and stuff. I was just terrible. Um, and before this and during this time, I had also been working uh, for my grandfather. I mentioned before he had a, a print shop and um he had adopted desktop publishing early on mm-hmm. like i think he might have been the first mac purchased in the state of oklahoma like he was on it like mm-hmm. when they, when so he saw that coming around then. yeah because yeah, he already had typesetters and and various other sorts of similar equipment for doing uh print publishing work and so he was excited by this idea um and he got the laser writer right when it came out mm-hmm. and so as a teenager and young adult um i started working for him basically doing uh kind of keeping all the computers working that they had there Mm -hmm. uh handling some really simple graphics jobs like people would come in and they'd be they'd have their artwork done by an artist but then they decided they wanted it in four different colors and so i'd spend time in adobe apps chopping it up and making plates from you know and adding some type here and there and doing some some typesetting task and things like that. Um, and then he also got one of the early image setters, a Linotronic. Uh, so, you know, this is a, mm. basically a high resolution output device that could print to photostatic paper or uh, film, right, for making mm-hmm. plates. And so uh, that's how they were making all the plates for their printing. But then because that was sort of a rare commodity, you could offer to do output for other people. So people would bring their work in and want to and pay you to output it in high resolution on this device that you had. Hmm. And you can only imagine if you think printer drivers suck, spend a bunch of time with high-end postscript <laughs> printer drivers. That uh, yeah. shit was terrible. And so I was just nerdy, computery enough to be the person who would tinker with that stuff and figure out why it wouldn't print mm-hmm. and work on making it print and keeping all that stuff running. So I had built up a lot of experience there. And I was working that job at the same time I was in college off and on. Mm-hmm. Um, which also interfered with actually, you know, getting an education. I I found there was one year in which I had no job, Uh, lived right next door to campus. I made great grades and did really well uh, that year. It uh, was awesome. That was great. Did did you eventually graduate from University of Oklahoma? I didn't. You know what? So I was well on the path to doing that. Um, And then uh, my grandfather got sick with brain cancer and it kind of derailed me a bit. I had to go back Mm. and work because no one at the print shop knew how to do what I did. It was he or I uh, knew how okay, to do the right. things I did. And mm-hmm. they were in dire straits at that point. Uh, mm-hmm. m- my uncle, his son, was had always worked with him at the same business. 
Um, and so they really needed someone to come in and train up new people right, to take sure. over while he was sick. And so I backed off my school a little bit at that point. And in that same time, I'd been, I actually kind of got back on track and I was doing an electrical engineering degree. And because uh, I, I kind of originally started thumb my nose at computer science like an idiot thinking, well, I know how to program. Yeah. What the hell are they going to teach me? Not realizing how little I really knew about mm-hmm. the larger world of computer science. Um, but that was kind of cool because I'd always loved electronics. I tinkered with building stuff and teaching myself how to build simple mm-hmm. circuits when I was a kid. Um, I hung out at Radio Shack a lot. And uh, usually... Radio Shack used to be cool. Yeah, Radio Shack used to be cool. It was like yeah. a little, yeah. little bit of paradise. I, yeah, know, there was like... there were many fires and, and explosives that happened as a result of my uh-huh. time at Radio Shack, definitely. But um, it, I kind of uh, decided, well, electronics are cool. And I don't know anything about that. That seems like magic to me. Mm-hmm. While I understand computer software to some degree. And so I, I focused on the EE degree. Uh, while I was there though it's what they would probably call computer engineering today where it was like mostly digital Mm -hmm. electronics and also taking some computer science classes to kind of give you that more computer focused electronics work Mm -hmm. but that's nice though to get not just programming but like some of the hardware yeah well being forced to really get into that math really Mm -hmm. paid off later I think like you know like like kind of getting my ass kicked by how hard math could really be and then Mm -hmm. having to fight through it was uh was a good lesson for me i think uh and it's paid off in some ways now but uh yeah that was that was an interesting time so i was nearly i was about a year away from completing that e degree uh and then i just kind of i think i honestly think if i were to analyze it i would probably say it was the death of my grandfather made me feel like why the hell have i been in oklahoma all this time it was sort of like that was the anchor that i felt mm-hmm. like was probably keeping me there and then i was like you know i don't need to be here uh, which was probably a bad time. I probably should just finish that year out. Um, but I was I was on my way to Chicago. That was where I wanted to go. I loved Chicago. Oh, Chicago, sure, yeah. Big city, crazy yeah. parties, nightclubs, mm-hmm. music that I liked. It was just what I thought I would do. And at the time, my roommate makes sense closer than New York City or Los yeah. I never Angeles really went East Coast. Like I still yeah. to this day have very spent very little time on the East Coast. But mm-hmm. uh, in in Growing up in Oklahoma, it sort of kind of went up and down the Midwest was where okay. we would travel. So Chicago was a place we would go sometimes to have fun. Um, mm-hmm. Or, of course, like Texas, big cities in Texas, oh, right, like Dallas course, or yeah. Houston or something, yeah. was uh, where we would usually travel to to escape the doldrums mm-hmm. of the suburban expanse of Oklahoma City. But, uh, yeah, so I was on my way to Chicago. I was like, this is... It's going to be great. I'm just going to go, whatever. I'll work in a gas station. There's bound to be some place that I can sure. work it's in Chicago. City. It's a big it's city, right? Yeah. I can do something. Yeah. I was looking at apartments, you know, it's like finding these cheap places over 400 bucks a month. It's like, I think I can make this happen. Um, but what's funny, Oklahoma is a place we used to refer to it as like the black hole. Um, in my time in college there and with all my group of friends and, and criminals and just strange people that lived in Norman, Oklahoma, where I went to college, um, people would leave thinking they would also escape into mm-hmm. a big city often sure, right. and then almost always come back. Like it never lasted more than a year. Right. And so you'd see this like yo-yo of people leaving and coming back, leaving and coming back. And then it's tragic. there was this interesting phenomena where the handful of people who went to Seattle would never come back. Uh-huh. <laughs> like it was sort of like, Oh, I kind of always thought of it as you've gotten beyond the event horizon of the black hole. Like when you made it to Seattle, it's either far enough out, away far or enough away. Seattle is <laughs> right. awesome or something. Right. And yeah. yeah. And everyone just had such great stories about how, how yeah. great Seattle was. And of course this was as the 
the music scene was getting so oh, right, red hot, sure, right? You yeah. know, so it was the beginning of all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had a I had a roommate, and he's like, you know, I want to move to. I know someone who's got a place we can stay for a short amount of time in Seattle. What about Seattle? Like, all right, sounds great. So just on a whim, uh, loaded up everything in my truck. Had a pickup. You've seen that pickup. I had it here mm-hmm. for a long time. Yeah. Uh, so filled that up, bought that to make the move actually. So at that mm-hmm. time my dad worked at a car dealership. So he was able to swing me alone with no job because I was a student, which was amazing. I don't know how that happened, but um, <clears throat> I got, got a truck, filled it up like, the clampets and the jodes. Yeah. It was literally filled above the cab with everything. We threw a mattress on top. Uh, Is it actually state law it. that Oklahomans can only move? Via, yeah. Like I think there's the only way you can and do they it. Must yeah. always move I had west, the world's right? longest bungee cord and, uh-huh. and just wrapped it about 700 times around the bed of the truck to, to pull everything down. And we did a two week, supposed to be one week, but we got a little sidetracked in Las Vegas two week adventure. Wow. To yeah. Travel. Okay. You need to rest, <laughs> regenerate. Yeah. 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 With a dog and me uh-huh. and my roommate uh-huh. and that truck that we, the mattress on the back. So sometimes we would just sleep on it, climb up on the top of that. If it mm. was a nice weather out mm. on the way out um, and just uh, landed in Seattle randomly. It really, really fairly random in terms of how you might end up living in a different city, I think. Belltown, Capitol Hill. Uh, so at first, the apartment that we were able to um, latch onto for a month was up in Everett. So that was okay. sort of home base while we were looking for jobs in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and then the first place we ended up renting was, they called it Queen Anne, but really it was like Magnolia. You know, it was right there across the street from where they put that driving range, the inner bay. Okay. Driving range. But were you actually on the Queen Anne side or no, on the Magnolia It was really side? on really? the Yeah. Like wow. they, the fact yeah. that they advertised it as a Queen Anne apartment was a little yeah, like, that's, what that's are you talking crazy. about? Like yeah. it didn't make any sense. Once I learned after I was here and sort mm-hmm. of got the lay of the land, I was like, I think you yeah. took the 33 bus. It's quite possible. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was where I was for, for a while. I have some really funny stories about that place. At some point, my, one of my roommates ended up being a stripper who was in a um, television show about kids with, uh, really screwed up families. It was this, that was a crazy situation. Um, that place. I, I met some mafia guys that run the strip clubs here in Seattle. So you're having fun. I was. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was interesting. Definitely. Um, but you know, but what about your education? Chris? Education you was school? on pause. Yeah. It was on pause. I, uh, what I'd gotten the miraculous luck that, um, had occurred was through, through my grandfather, I'd had all this experience with Adobe software mm-hmm. um, at the print shop. So I knew how to develop. I mean, well, that's not fair. I could program computers. I was not a seasoned software developer in any way of, you know, like producing real usable right. stuff. I had only made toy stuff, you know, for the most part and failed attempts at video games and synthesizing software and audio software and stuff. But um, it when... I got here and was looking for jobs. I really didn't. I mean, really, this is how dumb I am. I didn't know that there was like a tech bubble going on. Not even a bubble, but like an explosion in mm-hmm. Seattle. I had no idea this was. Eventually, I figured out, oh, Microsoft's from here. And I was like, ah, that's too bad. Yeah. I, I fucking hate Windows. <laughs> like, that's, that's a real bummer. Yeah. Uh, I was like, well, there must be something around here. And I remember um, doing a few job interviews and everything was so Windows focused. I had some mm. really bad job interviews because I had really. The only reason I had touched a Windows machine was to play X-Wing, that video game, the mm-hmm. Star Wars video game. And so I had done enough. Well, that's not fair. I had done enough to <clears throat> learn how to play that game. And then at some point I did decide that I was going to like for real make a game. And I 
probably can't do that on the Mac because no one will buy it. So I had gotten a cast off PC from my grandfather's print shop and had learned how to do 8086 assembly language, ah. which made me hate the whole platform even more. Mm. It got me to the point where I built a little sprite engine where I have a little guy running around on the screen and that's once again where I petered out. So I learned just enough about the sort of DOS Windows platform to to not really ever want to do anything with it again. Right. So I was doing all these job interviews. Like I went to, boy, one of the game companies had a tech support here and maybe it was like Sierra or somebody. And, you know, they're asking me these questions like, if you saw this blue screen of death with this error code and something, something GDI something, what would you tell them to do? And I'm all like, fuck, buy a Mac? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> like, probably shouldn't hire me. <laughs> exactly. I was like, yeah, that didn't go so well. Like, I was, you know, it's one of those things where you're sure you could figure it out, but I had no, right. no knowledge of how to do anything smart on Windows like that. You know, any troubleshooting kind of deep stuff like that. Then I did this interview for these guys that made CD-ROM software like burning software and drivers mm -hmm. for CD-ROM, their interview was, here, take the computer science GRE. Like they had some copy really? of it. Really? No kidding. I was like, all right, I'll do that. And it's like, it was all in Pascal. And I'm like, uh, I barely remember Pascal. Like I don't even know if I've got any of this syntax right or anything. It was weird. It was weird that it was so language specific for yeah. something that's supposed to be like a general test i don't know that was it that well, was a, a strange while though, pascal was the language and it, it was it assumed was, that you especially for the it, mac right, right? like yeah. in fact we kind of skipped over but i did a lot of mac programming in college and uh i'd gotten a powerbook duo mm -hmm. i loved that computer it's mm -hmm. like my first real mac that was mine you know i had a i got an apple 2gs in the middle there mm -hmm. and <clears throat> i'd used it i got really into music and and synthesizers and keyboards and i had midi rig set up through that 2gs and wrote software where you could trigger samples from a keyboard on the oh, cool. on the um computer and stuff and, <clears throat> and that was really fun but uh but then i got that mac and it was like that was a sweet spot for a little while there i feel like you know we had system seven was pretty good seven yeah. six was nice and yeah. that duo was so i mean for that time you know you had the little tiny computer mm -hmm. and you could bring it home and have full color and everything and i i used it a lot and i remember you know i wanted to get into mac programming so and all of my classes were in pascal at that time mm -hmm. um so i was doing pascal stuff you know uh because that was kind of native to the mac but then through the educational discount at the university of oklahoma i got the uh, think C compiler for like a hundred bucks or something. Ah, yeah. And then that was like real development. Like mm -hmm. that was yeah. really, really cooking at that point. And so I learned, I learned C um, through tinkering around. Yeah. I think C was, think C was amazing. Yeah. It was um, awesome. It was fast too um, for the day. Yeah. It had the reference for all the toolbox stuff you mm -hmm. needed. And yeah, it was, it was a well, well-designed IDE, especially uh, given how long ago that was. Like it was. I'm remembering the big yellow box. Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. being being a, or maybe it was semantic C by then. Semantic yeah. by then, I remember yeah. the yellow box. Yeah, because I had the C plus plus one at some point. I remember mm -hmm. that was yeah. C C plus plus one that was yellow. Yeah, yeah, I got. Uh, so I had I had developed a a bit of Mac development experience on my own during those uh, college days, mm -hmm. uh, and then. So I'd, I'd interviewed at the CD-ROM place, and they're like, oh, we want to offer you this job. But it wasn't, like, development. It was, like, you know, it was pro I think it was some sort of, like, white box testing. They wanted someone who knew enough that they could test and, you know, write test suites and things for their code. Right. But, man, that kind of sounded boring working on CD-ROM software. But, yeah, during that time, I, uh, I was still looking in the newspaper, and I saw Adobe had a call for jobs. And I'm like, what? Adobe is in Seattle. It's like, well, of course, I should go apply there. Yeah, right. I knew that. And I aced that interview. 
because yeah, I, mean, I was in my comfort yeah. zone, right? Yeah. You know, it's like, You're like you know, sure, I'll write postscript by hand. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's how I finally got employed without an education. Uh huh. Okay. Was uh, more dumb luck, really? I think no. you know, but happy to have it. Yeah, the the entire industry is built on dumb luck. It's probably true. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably true. Feel like Adobe. Um, so you were working as a uh, tester support. Yeah, I kind of clawed my way up through the ranks at Adobe. So I started doing um, tech support for uh, PageMaker. They had a huge tech support team for PageMaker. PageMaker mm. still made a lot of money at that time. Mm. If I suppose we might have PageMaker some, some was ones. the desktop yeah. publishing revolution. Really was just yeah. just about. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Quark came in later, but PageMaker. Yeah, that was the thing. It yeah, it made it viable really yeah, yeah really yeah. did and accessible to a lot of people <clears throat> um so yeah that was an interesting time i mean it was fun working for a big company and i had a lot of respect for adobe i mean i was i was very happy to be able to say yeah i worked for adobe i mean it was kind of it was uh it was a good time for that but uh i had to do a lot of windows tech support that was really painful yeah <laughs> they yeah. had just done that so you couldn't just be like the mac support no they everybody did both yeah, yeah. Okay. which was probably smart but um I mean, there were people, I think, as you escalated cases beyond your ability, mm-hmm. I never was very comfortable with that. I always wanted to solve it no matter what. But sure. um, generally, there were, I, as you went up, if I recall, in the upper tiers, there were people who were a little more specialized on one platform or mm-hmm. another sometimes. Um, but generally, most people worked with both platforms. And that was during the time in which, do you remember uh, Win32S and mm-hmm. that it's like, a, let you bootstrap how did it work would it let you bootstrap like 32-bit software on the 16-bit operating so what does it even do i can't even remember but mm. it was a complete hack I, maybe it was the right. other way around maybe it's a well no because it was win 32s we weren't doing 64-bit computing at that time so yeah it must have been to allow 32-bit software to creep along on a 16-bit operating system okay and uh it was terrible a disaster yeah and also at this time uh so this is when adobe had just merged with all this like mm-hmm. i got in right after that had all settled down so yeah. it was this group here was essentially all this mm-hmm. so um, did you work in pioneer square yeah yeah so we cool. were down there and adobe had just put i think that it was adobe that put their copy protection onto a special there's like a special version of PageMaker came out that just added copy protection on the network so this is where software would launch and go Oh, I see another copy with the same serial numbers running on this same network you're uh, on. Um, right. You know, I'm not gonna let you launch. And that thing was so ridiculously buggy on the various <laughs> Windows networks <laughs> that could be out there. Uh-huh. That I remember, um, our one of our solutions in tech support was if they're just having problems, order them a set of disks that doesn't have the copy protection and send it to them. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, at some point, right. you're like, okay, I did the three things. We're gonna send you some new floppies. It'll be there within the week. Uh-huh. Uh, just and, reinstall and you don't, PageMaker. You don't, you don't tell them that <laughs> exactly. It's, yeah, right. right yeah. Like it was no, like five hundred A or something work. was yeah. the yeah. number. I don't know, but yeah, it was. <laughs> oh my god, some of those tech support cases were just terrible. Yeah, that's crazy. It's a different era though, where um, you could contact tech support and be patient enough to accept yeah. that something will come in the mail. Yeah, right. Yeah, I know. I mean, sort of like, no, well, I want the answer. That was a terrible right situation now. for some people, too, because, I mean, you know, usually by the time someone calls on tech support, there's usually some urgency on the other oh, side. That's true. Right. Like often that's it's true. a we're printing deadline. tomorrow. Right? Yeah. Yeah. We had some 
legendary phone calls that got recorded and passed around from people who just absolutely lost their minds. Uh, like, like you just can't believe it. Like they're, they're having a nervous breakdown on the phone with you sort of like, uh, it could be real money. real. Yeah. Real I mean, just the panic, right? right? You know, yeah. that people get yeah. into, I remember this one woman going crazy, screaming about heads rolling. There'll be blood in the streets. Uh, this like, it was a good 10 minute screaming tirade <laughs> of just pure violence. It was really, really rough, really rough. Well, speaking of panic, we should talk about our next sponsor. That's a great idea. Uh, we're uh, we're going to talk about Hover. Hover's a domain name registrar. Hover.com. And so if you use the uh, promotional code PANIC, P-A-N-I-C, uh, you can get 10% off your first purchase at Hover. So I panicked. Yeah. I, yeah you may know my story. I about, do. Which is... I had um, my main domains, ranchero.com and essential.com, registered at Network Solutions because their registered so long ago, Network Solutions was the only, only way to go, the only game in town. Anyway, Network Solutions sends me email out of the blue. They're going to charge me $1,650 for the first year and $1,350 every subsequent year for some kind of security that I didn't ask for and didn't want. And furthermore, in order to not pay all that money, uh, I had to opt out. And furthermore, to opt out, I had to actually call them on the phone. <laughs> I couldn't believe this was true. I, you know, uh, they have like a Twitter kind of, you know, net Saul cares. I think it was account. <sighs> so I asked asked that that account if this email was true. It turns out to be true. Anyway, this this is just crazy, right? There's no way I can't. I couldn't possibly stay at Network Solutions. I had to move my my domain names at that point. So I did some research, and it turns out that the domain name that everyone that I respect really, really likes is Hover. And I wasn't surprised. You know, you know, I'm always hearing people talk about Hover. Hover is fantastic. Well, I had the experience myself of moving my domain names from Network Solutions to Hover. And you know what, what happened? Well... It was easy, at least on the Hover side. Network Solutions is another story. But Hover was easy <laughs> and, and you know, less expensive, too. And they have a great site, great support. They, they helped me out. Um, and I, I couldn't be happier. So now I have a bunch of other domain names that I will also move over to Hover. Because, yeah, I like their service a ton, and I recommend it, recommend it very highly. I personally use it. It's great stuff. Hover.com. Use the promo code Panic, P-A-N-I-C, for 10% off your first purchase. You know what I think is awesome about Hover is they're they're making it easy for people. I've been amazed at how any ordinary person could possibly have registered a domain name for like the past two decades. Like most of the places, mm -hmm. their websites to control and manage your DNS and what you have to know about DNS and understand just to get some simple things going. Um I mean, I always face it with great frustration and I'm supposed to be kind of good at this stuff. I don't understand. Yeah, right, like, sure. it's like saying, you know, well, it's really hard to get a phone number. Like, you know, it shouldn't <laughs> be hard to acquire a phone number. number yeah, right. And yeah. it's like, it's great that there's a company that's really making this. Uh, uh, absolutely. You know, approachable. Um, yeah. You know, and I was really worried about the the trouble of transferring for network solutions. Yeah. And Hover right. has, the, they call it the valet transfer service, which is like, they just take care of this stuff. Yeah, see, that's exactly that's what I so want. Cool. I want more valets in my life. Absolutely that's exactly right. what yeah. I need. I think they've really nailed this. That's fantastic. Yeah. So thanks, Hover. 
Where were we, Chris? So we were panicking. You were doing customer support. People oh, on yeah. the phone. Yeah, panic tech support. I, you know what? I, I definitely partied and drank and, and was a little out of control in college. But I think I really learned to drink from tech support because every day after work, it was necessary to go to a bar in Pioneer Square Which and has sit with my bars. coworkers yeah. and decompress and complain and moan uh, about that whole process it's i i kind of hate the phone to begin with like i just don't like handling things over the phone i kind of hate the interruption of the phone um Mm -hmm. it makes me agitated in general and to be in a situation in which you're sitting in the (laughs) cubicle and pretty much so as soon as you hang up the phone you're almost guaranteed it's going to ring again as soon as you put it down yeah right it was very hard to do after knowing that that is your job just to be interrupted all day because there isn't anything to be interrupted from yeah it was it was good i was a little lucky because what was happening was uh they were in the process of outsourcing all their tech support so you know Hmm. this this was an area in which adobe stock was underperforming versus what their real value probably should have been like Mm -hmm. it was a little mystifying i think to everyone like so we um mid 90s late 90s. yeah so i so this would be i got the job in 95 so this is like 95 96 Mm -hmm. time um and so you know adobe was making money and growing but their stock wasn't really uh, matching what everyone expected for a company that wasn't just hopeful, but actually making profit right in the tech right, industry. Sure. Right. You know? Um, and so, uh, I, I think that they were looking at how to restructure their cost and things like companies do. And it was sad because Adobe had this reputation for fantastic tech support. And I just absolutely loved that organization. Like I was shocked at how many of my coworkers that had been hired in this big hiring phase were all excellent people. Like I was like, how did you guys get so good at hiring such good people? Like, you know, and the whole organization cared and wanted to solve problems uh, and, and was good at it and had won awards all the time for their, for their great tech support. Mm -hmm. Nine months into it or so um, Adobe's like, we're outsourcing pretty much so all the tech support. And Mm -hmm. it went to a company here in Seattle. They're they're all over, but keen, big consulting kind of huge company. And so they were like, you know, um, we have to terminate your job here. These were, that was a contract position I started in. So it wasn't okay. like a full salaried employee kind of thing. And they're like, but you know, these guys need, need you guys. So if you want to go work there. And at that time I didn't really have any savings and it was mm-hmm. like, yeah, I probably should take a job. That sounds like a good idea. Yeah, having a money, job. It's expensive living in this damn city. Yeah. And uh, so I went over to the outsourcer and then I saw what was funny was, you know, we had, we handled sometimes the cases that didn't get solved at the outsourcer because people got mm-hmm. frustrated and hung up. Uh, and I'd gotten a really good reputation of being really good at solving the problems. I just, um, because of my impatience of being on the phone, I would never let people derail the thing. And uh, I would never <laughs> believe them when they told me something that uh-huh. I was convinced wasn't true. And so people would make fun of me all the time because I would just be like, are you sure? Could you just try that again? <laughs> all, people would listen to it and like, you always do that. I'm like, because I know. I know this is no. not true. And then eventually you'd find that like, yes, I, I really didn't restart it. I'm sorry. And you know, they would restart it or whatever, <laughs> oh, you know. And so, so I'd gotten really good at solving a lot of the cases. And we went over to the outsourcer and the people there, it wasn't their fault. The people there just had no training and no tools with which mm. to actually solve these problems, right? Because right. like, it was just a terrible um, sort of like, from what I understood, I don't know if this is true. They had described that the contract worked along the lines where the call volume was how they were paid. And mm-hmm. so that was sort of like the wrong incentive for right. solving problems. So they rarely, their whole 
first line of training wasn't really about solving problems as much as getting people off the phone. Right. <laughs> right. You know? right. So, so yeah, you could not solve a million problems. Exactly. Yeah, it was really easy to do that. So yeah. I, I, to prove a point, I feel bad for all the people on the other end of this, but to prove the point, I set their record for calls in one day by following their system to uh-huh. the letter and uh, dispensing with people in a rapid fashion. And so that was great. Cause that got me a promotion in their eyes, <laughs> which was funny. Uh, the day I got promoted, I had got I I had I knew there was some QA jobs coming up at Adobe, and I kept calling the recruiter guy there, and I'm like, Listen, "You got to get me back to Adobe. Like, mm-hmm. I cannot handle working." At the time, I had blue hair, and this was a very conservative company, and they were just looked like I remember going in the first job, and they were looking at me, and they're like, "They did not want to hire me. They didn't want me anywhere in that building." Uh-huh. But they didn't have a choice because no one else could do Illustrator tech support. I did Illustrator and PageMaker. And they really, really needed me there. Mm. They were just kind of looking at me like, you, what? Mm, That's funny because you think, you know, Adobe's a conservative company, but they make the software that artists yeah. use. Yeah, right? yeah. And Adobe, Adobe itself was always very, um, the San Jose offices were more conservative and corporate, mm-hmm. but the Seattle Aldis offices have always been a place where freaks of all nature came yeah. to work. <laughs> it was it was good. It was fun. It was a great environment. I really liked uh, the Adobe offices here. Um, not to say anything bad about the ones in San Jose, but the few times I was there, it was it was more stuffy, it felt yeah, like, and a little right. more cor- corporate kind of feel. Um, yeah, having the offices in Fremont, that's like, it's yeah, got to right. be Fremont. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah, so this, this outsourcer people, they hated me, and yeah. uh, but they but they loved me at the same time because I could blaze through their calls. So I loved it. The day I got the promotion was also the day I got notified that I, uh, to come take the job back at Adobe. And so I was like, great, love the promotion. I'm quitting. Uh, okay. See you guys. Nice. It was, it was, uh, it was painful, painful place to work. It was probably the most obnoxious I have ever been in a job because I hated it so much. Mm. I, I the, it brought out the very worst in me. I think it was terrible, terrible thing. Ah, so, uh, uh, thank goodness for Adobe. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Going. Getting back was great. So with testing, were, were you? Was it just like user interface testing, or were you writing code? So down? what was what was really cool was um, the very first job that I got back there. They had built up a huge suite of automated tests that ran in this. Um, it's kind of a language or a package called I think it was called QA Partner, mm-hmm. and so it was a almost like an IDE or scripting environment that you could use to drive software on Mac or Windows. You could write one script okay. and maybe even other platforms too. But um, Was this then, developed in-house or something? No, it was had... actually something they, yeah. they uh, yeah. licensed and and, uh, and used. And I, I don't, you know, eventually I learned why this was not the way to go. This was probably, it probably forever tainted me from test driven development because. Which is over now. I yeah, think. right. Exactly. Thank God. Because yeah. uh, I skipped the whole thing. Worked out perfectly. <laughs> um, it, you know, I, they paid me a lot of money relatively to maintain this huge suite of tests. And I added to them and kept them running and they were finicky and they'd break all the time because it was really driving the UI. I mean, mm-hmm. it was like, where's right. that button? Let me click that button. And mm-hmm. you know, the button would the change button and it moves. couldn't click it anymore and things would go bad. And so I was spent a lot of time making these things work. And I think maybe it caught one bug mm-hmm. in the entire time that I remember being in charge of running it. Right. Um, so, so I did do something a little closer to white box testing in that mm-hmm. job. Uh, but this was also the time in which uh, what would be InDesign was being incubated. Mm-hmm. And there was yeah. not a clear picture of about how these products were going to go going forward. So for a period of time, there was going to be InDesign and PageMaker. 
Hmm. And InDesign was going to target a high-end audience and PageMaker was going to continue to... It, PageMaker's market had shifted to more of the business kind of uh, right. market versus high-end publishing because mm-hmm. Quark had taken most of that, right? And so InDesign was going to be how they get the high-end back. Okay. Uh, and both products were going to coexist over the course. So at some point, I got reallocated to um, just doing regular kind of user testing on the next version of PageMaker, which is probably going to be mm. PageMaker 6, I think, probably at that mm. time. The, not too long after that, the decision came down that like, nope, we're going all in on InDesign. Mm-hmm. Uh, so everyone came over to InDesign. And InDesign was built like a huge SDK from the ground up. It, it had a small core app, and mm-hmm. all of the functionality was provided by plugins. There were okay. 200 plugins, 300 by the time it shipped, wow. that that uh, the whole thing was made from. And mm. so... Um, they were. And is this all written in some kind of cross-platform yeah, layer? It's or all cross-platform. Yeah. yeah. So um, <clears throat> it was. Uh, if you're familiar with the idea of Com, mm-hmm. that was the uh, basis. The idea of Com, their own version of it that was uh, working on both platforms. All I remember is I unknown. Yes. Yes. That was that's tedious way to write software. Let me tell you. So, like, yeah. uh, I mean, it kind of almost made me want to quit writing software by the time I got done with it all, uh, learning that. But but it was like a huge, like someone was like, here, there's this SDK sitting here and you don't know C++ yet. Um, no one stopped me from going and downloading what I needed to start building stuff. And so I started mm-hmm. making, well, I uh, wanted to write a benchmark suite that like, um, testers could use on any build to mm-hmm. see what the performance characters were and they would post things to the like post the results to the whole group and everything right. and so i, I kind of learned how to write indesign plugins by writing this benchmark like a oh, panel cool. inside indesign that would drive it and uh, run benchmarks and so that got me shifted over to doing uh white box qa and so we did a lot of really cool stuff um developing for indesign in a testing capacity mm-hmm. um, and so i spent a lot of time doing that and then eventually moved over to pure development on Okay. In design and related products. And InDesign was a big success for Adobe. It so was. It was like the thing. I think yeah. it was the last thing I was really, really proud of Adobe doing because yeah. um, they had to stick it out. They had to go. We just poured a crap ton of money. I mean, I it was a great education. I'd never, I'd always wondered how to team of people contribute to one piece of software. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, when we were going to school, I'd imagine you didn't use version control in any Right. Like, I mean, how long was it before you first used version control? Right? Yeah, I mean, geez, like, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, must have been like 2001 or something. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. I had no idea how any of that worked. How do you yeah. divide up tasks among people? Yeah. How do you integrate all these code changes together and stuff? So it was a great education and some of the primitive at the time tools. Like, I think we, I think we were on CVS when we started, but we moved yeah, over right. to Perforce pretty quick. The Which, difference uh, between CVS and nothing is yeah, huge. Right? right. Oh, no, it wasn't CVS. It was uh, the Microsoft thing. What was it called? Uh, oh, uh, SourceForge or something? No, no, what nah. was it called? SourceSafe. SourceSafe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what it was. I remember. And there was some weird Mac client for that that was That's right. Terrible. I forgot. I used SourceSafe. Uh, the Code Warrior guys made the Mac client, and it was, it was, yes. It was terrible. Yes. Terrible. Absolutely. I might have mentioned this in that. one of our yeah. previous podcasts, but we used, at the beginning of InDesign, it used Code Warrior for Windows. So mm. most of the people who were in the early stages of it seemed to favor the Mac. I mean, every engineer was expected to do both, but once sure. again, we had people who were specialized into certain areas mm-hmm. sometimes. But um, they, 
it was kind of all built up in Codeware. It's like, well, we're going to have to have Windows version of this. And it's like, oh, let's use Codeware for Windows. And then some of the Windows guys came on board and were like, uh, are you crazy? This is generating some, some garbage code. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, we can't do this. And so eventually we did end up using oh, Visual Studio. Visual Studio. Pretty good. For oh, time. yeah. And I, I think that Codeware was fine. Um, they, you know, the strength of Codeware was that cross compiler in the back. I mean, that was like mm. their kind of thing, right? And that's why they got so much traction in the uh, game console industry, I think, right. because they could, you know, build this IDE that would spit out uh, code for all the various, you know, custom hardware for uh, the game consoles. But I just think that their window versus the tuning that you could get from years of Visual Studio. Oh, right, of course. Yeah. I just don't think Code Warrior had the resources to make their compiler compete. Yeah. In right. that regard. Right. So it was okay, but not going to generate a product like InDesign that mm-hmm. needed to be as fast as possible because it was a beast, right? Yeah. I mean, it was. InDesign was slow. I can't. It was one of those. It felt like OS X was slow at that time. You know, everything uh, yeah. was just like, you know, like it was. It was huge. It all caught up and was great. But I remember after really switching to OS X, I think probably during the public betas. But then I'd have one old machine that ran OS eight or OS nine or whatever, and then I'd yeah. go do anything on that yeah. machine, and it seemed so fast. <laughs> yeah. It was just right. incredible. Yeah. Right. It. It was tough, though. I, I do have to admit, like, uh, you know, I was a Mac guy during that time, and I had the Windows machine in my office, um, and I would never develop on the Windows machine. I would just usually debug on it, mm-hmm. uh, because Visual Studio actually had a better debugger mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, um, For and it was painful to bu- debug InDesign. To launch the debug build would take two or three minutes. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, you wanted to get the most out of your session <laughs> without yeah. having to restart it, right? right? Like, there's no, like I do today, you know, like, oh, do that again. Oh, do it again. Oh, yeah. run it again. Right. Now, this, I'm going to do it three more times just to see if that really is it. Like, no, it was, it was massive. I mean, building and design at that time. Yeah, these days I'll think nothing. I'm like, ah, I'll just clean the build and then. Right, you just yeah, go again, you know, yeah. it's like, yeah, it's no big deal. But it was painful. And I, what killed me was just the number of times you would, introduce a bug that would flat out crash your mac like you know like i mean that was the that was the killer right like everything was acceptable except for that and Mm. so it was hard to debug on my mac uh with such a just piggish app you know took so long to build so long to run so i did spend a lot of time getting to know visual studios debugger in those days but i did all my sort of architecting and writing code on my mac Mm. you know and then fixed it over on the other side usually but but it was uh something else huge software and i don't i still can't believe how big InDesign was i mean there was just so much code so much so much stuff yeah i've never i've never even seen a project that big yeah don't even know what it looks like well i mean it literally you know it took me a year just to get comfortable because it's not like you know it's using all stuff that they invented right you know it's not even like well you you know coco you have all these resources to learn coco it's Mm -hmm. InDesign's own SDK made by the mm-hmm. people. Fortunately, the people who made it are right there yeah, down the right. hall from you. But it's like, you know, at that time, it wasn't really documented yet either. Oh. Um, so, you know, it was it was really a challenge to learn to develop in that environment. Um, yeah, I bet. And the unfortunate consequence was, well, maybe fortunate in the end, was it made me hate C++. So. Well, that's just good taste. Yeah, yeah might be. C++. Might be. At first, I just thought I was a dummy, which is probably true. But eventually, I kind of realized, you know what? It doesn't actually have to be this hard. Yeah. There are ways right. to do this that aren't this hard, actually. So. Every other object-oriented programming language is better. <laughs> I mean, or at least, the you know, it's you just are given so much rope to hang yourself with in C++. Yeah, right, I sure. mean, you know, I'm sure you could write stuff that was a pleasure to use in C++, but Probably. it just didn't There's happen a, very like, often. a disciplined <laughs> subset 
you know, if, right. we could, if everyone could agree on it, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Here's something that you might find entertaining. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but um, we've talked about OpenDoc before Apple's technology oh, yeah. that right. failed. Uh, several of the OpenDoc guys came to work on uh, that team, and mm -hmm. they brought the OpenDoc resource compiler. And that's what InDesign used to build its resources, was the oh, really modified okay. version of ODFRC. ODFRC. Yeah, so hmm. uh, it was a cross-platform way to define your resources. So, mm -hmm. you know, all the cool. panels and buttons and menus and various UI elements and, and mm -hmm. even some other things were um, all defined in this language oh, kind sense. of. Yeah. Um, and you would you, we had a compiler that you could plug into Code Warrior or Visual Studio mm -hmm. and it would assemble up the, the resources. Cool. Yeah, everything was cross-platform. It was kind of cool as a, as a developer. I mean, I'm probably more of a person who would have enjoyed you know making the Mac side of it I, rather than writing the cross-platform part of it. But mm -hmm. people had abstracted away everything so that um, over the course of time, I spent very little time in either platform's SDK. Mm -hmm. There was occasionally be areas where we were doing something new with the UI and there would need to go down and tinker with uh, some of the, you know, uh, platform SDK. But most of the time, you just wrote the software in InDesign's SDK. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. And then Adobe has a had a huge, um, their graphics library was common to all the major apps. So mm -hmm. that you could basically draw and generate stuff on the screen or accurate PostScript, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so yeah. that was super important for all those apps. And so that was all uh, a common thing that all the products shared built by a team of engineers who were specialized in that. Mm -hmm. So, but it was huge, huge stuff. Well, before we break you out of Adobe, we'll take a last sponsor break. Here. Yeah. Let me tell you about Igloo software. Igloo software has, has a great, a great tagline. Igloo software is an internet you'll actually like. So what it is is it's an, it's an internet and you're actually going to like it. And but that's <laughs> but that's true. So you want to you want to work together with some people and, and you want um, oh you want uh, microblogging and sharing and uh, statuses and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's what Igloo provides, and it is free for I think it is up to ten people, uh, and, and after that you know. Uh, you can try it out with a small team, and after that, you can pay more if you want to get more people. But it's free for up to 10 people. And you can go learn about it at igloosoftware.com slash the record. It's got shared, shared calendars, even. Every part of it's social. There's commenting on pretty much everything. Um, and you've got, uh, you got control over page layout and all this kind of stuff. Uh, it's really cool. You're actually going to like it. It's an internet you're actually going to like. igloosoftware.com slash the record. Beats the heck out of SharePoint. <laughs> Thank God someone's beating the heck out of SharePoint. <laughs> ah, no kidding. No kidding. I actually did, you know, I have some SharePoint experience. A company I used to work yeah. for, NewsGator, did SharePoint plugins. So they lived and breathed SharePoint. And I actually had to use it sometimes. And, you know, uh, I really like Microsoft Azure. I really hate yeah. Microsoft SharePoint. <laughs> I believe that. You know, oddly enough, I have a tiny bit of SharePoint experience, though. I think it's in a locked away in a trauma center in my brain. But <laughs> that's uh, where it belongs. Yeah. Yeah. We we picked up a contract once doing uh, a little work for Adobe, uh, and they wanted to integrate a product that they had with SharePoint, and we wrote the adapter for that. Um, 
I've heard even the APIs can cause trauma. <laughs> it was it was so bad. It was so hard to figure out how to do that, and it was trying to map their structure onto this other structure that Adobe had. I just, I was done with that. Yeah, I was done with that. Thank God for the iPhone. Well, if anyone out there is you know wants to not be traumatized, go to igloosoftware.com/slash/the-record. Nice. Thanks, Igloo. You're you're in Adobe. You're working on InDesign. Yeah, at that point, but you know, started to move over to secret projects. Secret projects. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, that was uh, still secret. No, it, I don't think it matters now. Yeah. Um, the main thing, <clears throat> I had gotten derailed for a little bit into a Java-based project there that was sort of. Um, if you've ever been a part of the print publishing world, you know they much like as software developers, we need to coordinate things with source control and issue trackers and whatnot. People mm -hmm. making magazines and newspapers every day have to need kind of, you know, support systems to let them organize all their assets and get their stuff produced properly. So there's a huge industry out there that builds custom software uh, or software that is customized for particular clients around <clears throat> uh, Adobe applications in the creative suite. Mm -hmm. And then design a particular quirk. This was one of quirk's big strengths. So a big thing InDesign had to do was offer all that same ability up uh, for people to go in and customize workflows and software to uh, provide to these big publishers, particularly newspapers, rely mm. on that. Because, you know, they produce every day. They've got to really right, streamline sure, stuff, right? Yeah, you know? right. Makes sense. So I had worked on a project that Adobe was going to do internally to provide a system like that. And they, they decided that it was better to just let the partners do that at some mm. point. And they oh, kind okay. of abandoned that project. Um, so I started off on a, a Java project at, at some point there uh, and then came back into the InDesign fold. And then a small team of us got a chance to work on what would be the successor to PageMaker. So PageMaker was essentially end of life. They'd moved it to be only Windows because there weren't a lot of Mac users anymore. Mm -hmm. And they were just keeping it alive to run on whatever latest Microsoft Windows operating system it's, that came out. It's right? such a, a sad end. PageMaker is, yeah, is one, yeah, of the, one of the pillars of the history of right. Macintosh. Yeah. Yeah. They kind of did the same thing with FrameMaker too, which is mm. a different different sort of thing, sure. not, not nearly as popular. But um, So we were a group tasked with creating what would be the next version of PageMaker, so a more consumer business user mm -hmm. versus a high-end publisher, but just base it all on the InDesign code base. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where I got to get... Uh, really close time working with all my colleagues that became Rogue Sheep. Oh, okay. Um, so there was a, a big team of us, uh, and we that was a sweet spot. That was like the best time at Adobe. Um, you know, we kind of got moved off into our own part of the building, and we had freedom to explore some things, and we got mm. to build some really cool UI and things for this, uh, and, and start working through how to solve the problems of this new um, customer, you know? Like, what is... Mm -hmm. Like we've got this super complicated InDesign. How do we take that engine there, but express it in a way that um, you know the, the person who doesn't care about CMYK separations right, and sure, optical yeah. character alignment and all mm. these high-end features? And what do they really need? You know, what's mm. going to get them documents that print successfully and give them what they want all the time? So it was really fun. I love that. Every day, we we had a special office that had couches and lamp and like a dartboard and a whiteboard in it, and uh, we would when everyone rolled in, we'd meet there with our coffee. I guess it was kind of like how people do a stand-up now. Yeah, okay. Um, but it wasn't so much like, what are you doing? What do we do? It's like, what's the next thing we got to tackle? What's the problem we got to solve mm -hmm. next? What should we talk about? You know, mm -hmm. like, okay, let's talk about this thing. How are we going to solve this problem, you know? Um, and it was fun. So we got to find out that we were a machine that worked pretty well together. And we were yeah, cruising cool. along and making a, what I thought was going to be a really fun app. 
to uh, and be proud of. And then inevitably, our project got canceled. Right? Ah. And so that was the beginning of the end of Adobe for me. Mm-hmm. I, I always think back to that moment when my grandfather probably, I told you about when the, yeah. he made the machine and then they're like, yeah, we're going to take that from you for a dollar. I mean, Adobe did, they compensated me. They've never done anything poor for me uh, at all. In fact, we, we skipped over your ask about my education. While I was at Adobe, I took advantage of a program they had to uh, pay for your undergraduate. And so I did finish mm. school at the University of Washington while I was working at Adobe ah, good. Uh, and picked up a EE degree there. Um, so, so I was done with that and working on this team and, um, then we kind of got the rug pulled out from underneath us and it was rough cause, cause we really, it wasn't at that point, it wasn't like having a job. It was like having a cool thing to do every day that yeah, someone paid you well for, mission, right. You know, yeah. it was really cool. And so, um, that was a huge disappointment mm-hmm. at that point. And we kind of got spread to the winds a bit. I mean, we were all still in the same office that we still mm-hmm. hung out, but we were all working in small groups on different things um, and floundering about. And I was just getting this feeling while I was there that um, I didn't want to just be, I always call it a code monkey. I just didn't want to be a person who someone told me what to build and handed me the designs and told me how to do it. Mm-hmm. And then I just go implement that and go along. I Having a taste of getting to influence an app and thinking about those problems was way more interesting. Um, yeah, absolutely it is. So I started... I we've skipped over a lot of things. There's just too much probably, but um, through a weird sequence of events, I had spent some time on the University of Washington's campus at the Hit Lab, Human Interface oh, Technologies yeah. Lab, mm-hmm. and these were people doing really cool, far-reaching research into how to interface technology and humans. And uh, I got to go talk to interview these guys who were doing uh, retinal display so they were able to project images right onto your retina wow now that's a retina display it was yeah, neat it great. was very neat we got to that's try cool. it out you know uh-huh. um and i got the bug i was back on a campus and i was like you know i'd fit and i was like man i really like being in this environment where you got some mm. freedom to explore things you know um and so i i decided at that point i was going to take a, a leave of absence from adobe and go back to work towards a phd in electrical mm-hmm. engineering so I took a good year off and did that. And in that same time, the group of us that were on that PageMaker replacement product had, had been talking and like, you know, we should do something. We mm-hmm. all liked working together. Why don't we do something? Um, and so the train started rolling. Like layoffs came up and one of, them, one of us got strategically laid off. And mm-hmm. I was gone on a leave of absence. And mm-hmm. Another person quit. And so we started slowly building the team back up as what became Rogue Sheep on the side. And so into my second year of grad school, it looked like we were we were charging ahead. Like it wasn't just going to mm-hmm. be a thing we did. We were really going to do this company. Right. Um, so I decided I would peel off at a master's degree. I could finish there mm-hmm. uh, and uh, go full-time Rogue Sheep. And that's kind of the very next thing that happened. So what was uh, Rogue Sheep organized to do? Right. What was the point? Were you um, yeah. we're just going to be monkeys for other people? Or? The point was but, to never be very good at doing what the point was. I think that's what we were awesome at. Well, Probably all like my you fault. Wanted to wanted to become a product company. Yeah, so that was course, what we did. That's yeah. really yeah. hard. Uh, so unless you're coming in with a a lot of money, and you're not probably. No, no, yeah, I, yeah like I mean. <clears throat> There was also the, during that time too, like the circumstances I remember happening was uh, the options I had on paper were worth a lot of money, but I needed a little bit more time for them to vest. And then mm. Adobe stock just got hammered. Nah. Yeah, with the, 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 that bursting the tech, mm-hmm. tech bubble. And right. so like, 
about the time that I decided to do this, like leave for grad school and everything, I was like, oh, all that money that I was going to have is kind of like a much smaller portion of money now. (laughs) Damn it. Um, So I didn't, yeah, I, I didn't have a whole lot of money. I mean, each of us came in with a different financial situation, I think, but in general, we spent a lot of time talking and basically said, we're either going to bootstrap ourselves or we're going to have to take some investment, you know? And that was the the first long discussion of like, you know, when we started the company, what are we going to do? But the idea was to build some software mm-hmm. that was our own thing. And what we settled on was um, something to help people who were doing research in life sciences. So uh, people doing experiments in genetics and things, um, do something called gel electrophoresis. And it's going to be really boring to discuss on a podcast, but basically they make these images that are the data. That's the result of their experiment Mm -hmm. and they need to be interpreted and then they're published. And so they're labeled and published. And so my colleague at the time, Jeff Vargas, that, you know, Mm -hmm. um, his wife was going through her PhD or maybe even postdoc at this time, um, making all of these figures from these images painfully and, PowerPoint, I think, is mm. what she was using. And he was watching her do this, and he was like, this is just so bad, right? <laughs> like, we, maybe we could make something to do this. And so we looked into it, and then, you know, people all over the world doing this type of research are producing these type of images all mm-hmm. the time. Right. Um, so we started writing, a mistake number one, I think, cross-platform software uh, to address that. Mm-hmm. Um, Codename Iron Spike, I remember. Iron Spike. <laughs> and so uh, mm-hmm. what's funny is we did eventually give it a name, and I totally forgot what the freaking name is. We should get Chill in here. She did. Embarrassing. Um, yeah, we talked about this before. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Western bots. Yeah, right? Yeah, so you've seen them. You know what the kind of thing I'm talking about, yep. right? And so all the research journals, this is what that is published, and people are mm-hmm. producing these all the time. And we had some ambitions that, like, you know, step one was, like, just make it easy to generate these labels. And so Jeff and I wrote this uh, cool little algorithm to analyze the images and uh, find the lanes and kind of pre-populate. Like, maybe mm-hmm. you want a label here. You know, if you right. do, just click, you know, basically. Mm-hmm. So we built a pretty cool piece of software. At some point along the line, well, you know, the, the classic thing that happens, right? Um, do we go get funding or do we bootstrap ourselves? Mm-hmm. And and right. we looked at our development timeline. And it's like, well, we're not going to finance it with our own money. So um, do we go get the funding from someone else? Yeah, we all felt a little uncomfortable with that. Sure, we were just yeah. like, I don't want to be a little more in control of our own destiny. We weren't sure. How much time would we spend just trying to get money? Mm-hmm making this pitch over you know while we could just maybe just build it and get it done yeah so what do we do to to give ourselves the runway to do this well let's do some contracting right and Mm -hmm. so there was a high demand at that moment for um developers that could do indesign i mean (laughs) who knows indesign right right? you know there's like nobody and so now suddenly we're like five dudes who built indesign who are available to help you create your software and so we got involved in some huge contracts that were for companies that were building systems for like all of the guardian mm-hmm. uh, okay. and yeah, yeah so huge you guys things, right? knew the SDK. And right. Everything. Yeah. It's so like we, we were, works. we, we knew secrets that no one else knew about how to get things done. Right. You know, so, right. so we did, we did pretty well at, uh, you know, contract, we made it, we made good money contracting uh, and it did delay us getting done on our product. So that kind of, we decided at that point, like, well, let's just do one platform and let's do the Mac. There's a lot, of, we can find mm-hmm. enough people doing research on the Mac that we can at least prove the point. Right. Um, and so we did, we built, we kind of got it done about the time we flamed out and decided that there was no market for it and that we mm. probably couldn't actually publish it. That's right? a hell of a niche. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if it was the case. We got, we ended up at the labs at the university of Washington. We had some people there who were using our software mm-hmm. and, and giving us feedback. And I remember even for years after we 
had kind of abandoned the plan, there was someone would send the email to Dan and be like, you know, my beta expired. Could you <laughs> renew it? You know, still using it. So there was at least one person out there in this world that loved I think the, the problem would have been marketing. I mean, so it's a niche, but you need a big it's percentage hard, of the right? people. How do you lose yep. And yeah. there was a, there were two things, you know, because of what was happening in the um, financial world and, and with the, the Bush administration, just like nicked so much funding. Sure. Right. And so that's how these groups are getting, you know, most of this is going to be educational institutions. Mm -hmm. And then we started developing the um, picture that most people in the academia world don't see software as an expenditure. It's just free. Mm. Like software is free or you don't use it. So either you pirate mm. it or you use something for free right? Huh. or not. Now, you know, beakers or even a computer to run something on. Yes, you can get money in a budget to get those things. So, you know, we kind of talked about ideas, you know, what if we bundled this with an imager, you know, like this software and uh, a piece of hardware right, yeah. together and stuff. But I, I think we just lost our confidence that mm. it was going to be something that we could really support. You know, each one of us, I think, probably had a different viewpoint, but I think that in my mind, I started losing confidence that we were going to really support a company of five yeah. people doing this anytime soon without some sort of other investment and help with the marketing and things like that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so it was easy to fall back on contracting and, you know, during that time we shed partners. We started with five. Also, I would recommend never do that. That's a lot of partners. It's a lot of people. Yeah. We were all, everyone was great, mm -hmm. um, but it's so hard to achieve uh everyone wanted to democracy and we did it that way right mm -hmm. but i don't think that's the way you really want to do that i think mm -hmm. if you're going to have a lot of people involved someone's got to clearly be the person who gets to just call it as it is yeah, sure. and we could have done that we just didn't i think it was all in our natures to try to be democratic about everything yeah, right, right? like course. so each of right. us was okay with that it was like yeah that's the way we should do it you know and mm -hmm. so um it was very difficult though to drive towards a vision with five people all with equal weight, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, right? you, do, you do need you do need a leadership. Yeah. Um, so that was yeah. yeah. In, in my little company, just three people. I mean, we we come to a consensus, but we do yeah. have one dictator. Yeah, there's always yeah, you know, right. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah you know, that was in the end. It's like yeah, Michael's talk yeah. with the dictator. I mean, yeah. that's and, that you know lesson learned the hard way. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So right. So very true. You know, and I don't, I don't think we had any one of us at Rogue Sheep who wanted to necessarily be a dictator. I mean, I probably sure. had a lot of strong opinions and probably thought I might want to, but at the same time, I didn't want people to like, you know, I wanted everyone to be happy with the result. And that was very mm -hmm. difficult. I, so I did, I know I did a personally bad job of being very good at, at steering things because I, I did want to somehow get us where everyone was happy and it was really hard to do that, mm -hmm. I think. Not not because anybody it's just hard to do that in general. It doesn't matter who the sure. five people are, you know. So Well, you did have uh I would say at least one really nice success with yeah. postage. Yeah, it was a really an interesting little accident. Yeah. yeah. And and that was the first year of the iPhone ADAs, I think. Basically, well, they had the sort of pre-SDK ADAs. Uh -huh. You remember like before you could really ship apps? Hmm. Because that's when Twitterific got one, right? Oh, that's like right. I think, okay. as I recall, that it was right before you could actually send them to the store, but mm. they did want to see what people had done that was cool. Okay, right. So there was a series of ADAs there, but then when they were the first ones that were like live App Store, right? Okay, that's you right. know, so it was, it was a good year later, a good year of App mm -hmm. Store had gone mm -hmm. by. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting because we, you know, so so while we were always poking around at different ideas, um, we we later. The company contracted a little bit and got down to three of us. And then we were like, well, we can definitely support ourselves contracting, but like, you know, let's build up a vision of 
some bigger things we could do. And so we looked at, um, InDesign had a server-based product, mm-hmm. uh, and we were, but it, if you were to purchase it, it wouldn't do anything. You had to build stuff around it. And so okay. we we're like, well, maybe we can build some skeleton stuff around that and license that to other people. And we looked at like some, uh, like an image process, like a addition of Photoshop used to have a server, but then it went away. Mm-hmm. So we were looking at some tools like that. Like, what well, can we do some automated image processing thing that we could license to people? So we were starting to build up some other technology that was more towards what we knew a lot of the publishing industry. Um, but at that same time, the iPhone came out and we had all this Mac experience. Most of the contracting work we did was cross-platform best or Mac. I mean, so many of those publishers mm-hmm. have used the Macs all the way through the darkest days, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so <clears throat> we had tons of Mac software development experience. And so um, then we got lucky too in that we, uh, Brad Ellis came to work for us. Yeah. Not as a designer, which if most people know him <laughs> as, but we needed someone to test stuff because well, he was only like yeah. 10 years old. Yeah. He was working part-time for Gus too. And, 19 uh, or 21. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. He was very young. And we met him uh, hanging out at Xcoders and through Gus. Mm-hmm. And it was clear he was really smart and knew a lot about Adobe software. Yeah. And so it was like, well, you know, we need someone who's good with Adobe software to test some of these things that we're building for ourselves and for other clients. So, you know, you want to do some part-time testing with us. And then it became pretty clear that Brad was really good with UI. Mm -hmm. So we were like, hey, we're going to build this thing for a client. They don't know. They just gave us a paper description of what they want. You want to design the UI for it. Um, And he did a great job with that. You know, Um, I don't think we ended up getting to build that through some weird sequence of events that happened Mm -hmm. like this financial crisis happening contracts going away you know everyone we're talking to uh, tell me you had a contract with lehman brothers yeah we were starting we were in this big deal with them and on the phone with them and then they just went completely yeah, silent right it. and then like two I'm weeks sorry, later it's been disconnected yeah, it was terrible so yeah so we're like you know so at that point we're kind of in some sense we're floundering because it's not clear what there's going to be out there for us mm-hmm. um because so many people were suddenly putting the brakes on spending any money yeah, yeah. um and uh, and we'd staffed up a bit um, and got uh, some other people like Jake, who's now at Omni, and, and uh, some other people working with us. And the iPhone came around, and it was fun mm-hmm. and exciting, and we knew Coco. Yeah. Uh, and Jeff had this idea when we were at WWDC. Um, I remember um, you or him telling me about it. Yeah, and he's like, you know, yeah, we need to do like a virtual postcard app just to summarize it. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, it's like, that sounds great. We have an idea that has got a scope that we can take on and do. Fantastic. And so far, far away from that. uh, Yeah, right. Biology. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally different. Yeah, right. Simple consumer. Consumer based. I was like, yes, because we were always terrible at coming up with ideas for consumer based products. You know, we've come up with all these other fancy niche Mm -hmm. things, but finding something that was truly broad appeal. Um, And this was so it sounded great. Uh, We were pretty knee deep in some contracting work that we had going, like Mm -hmm. as far as like development people. So it's like, okay, Brad. Start working on the design. We'll, we'll be there eventually, but just start designing this. So he had, it was fantastic. He had, I don't remember, it's all fuzzy in my head now, but he had a, a good long time mm. to just sit and look at iPhone apps and look at how iPhone worked and iterate and iterate and iterate over the design of this postcard app while we were all busy. And then by the time we started coming free, he had really refined this thing, mm. had made this amazing design. 
And uh, so we and probably had a all working quartz composer or something too. <laughs> yes, yes. there was. A, this was a little bit before his complete mastery of quartz composer, uh, okay. but I think at this time probably motion or After Effects was likely mm-hmm. what he was uh, monkeying. He could probably correct that, but yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So we, you know, we dove in uh, and hammered that thing out uh, because you know the nice thing was we did suddenly then have five developers who could contribute. Mm-hmm. at least sometime like all right. of us weren't free equally but like we did just sort of like and yeah. uh realized his design um just in time to get under the wire for the ada awards yeah that year um which was a really fun experience because um i suppose it's probably okay to i don't know why it wouldn't be okay to tell this story but one one really funny thing was in in postage we needed to so this this is a really early iphone so uh Sending an email from an app was not easy, so we're we're building an app that can share uh, a postcard that you make from an image. You take an image, put it in a little template for a postcard type thing, maybe put some text on it, and then you're going to send it by email. To actually send that as an attachment, we had to do our own SMTP, right? Like you couldn't do that through the SDK. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was some. There was no mail composer thing. Yeah, I forgot about and jeez. Actually, what I ended up using was something that um, uh, Kyle and Ian wrote. I'm pretty sure both of them contributed Hmm. to it Um, and open sourced. Uh And so uh, so I didn't actually know those guys. Yeah, maybe I know. I think I knew Ian because of uh, C4, maybe. But... um, All right, and... uh... My birthday party in Vegas was too. Yes. Oh, I forgot yeah. that you were there. That's, right. that's totally, that's, that's probably yeah. it. So yeah, so we used their thing uh, to send emails. But because of that, we had to kind of vector it through our email account uh, mm-hmm. server. And because uh, we didn't want people to have to type in their password and yeah, right, account, sure. right? That's, that's a dead end. Yeah. Um, we also wanted to kind of pre-fill who it came from mm-hmm. with their email address. So if someone did reply, it would go back to them, right? You can't get their email address. Well, well you can't. You could. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. so we did it in a way that was, I guess, violating the terms of no private mm-hmm. API. So what it really was was um, it wasn't a private API call, but it was a key in a dictionary okay. that was not published. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how we found out about it. Um, I think Jake figured that out. And so we needed to, uh, we used that to get the phone number. Mm-hmm. And then we looked in the contract and the address book and like, well, whoever in the contacts has this phone number is probably the person who owns this phone. Mm-hmm. Let's ask them if they want to use this email address. <laughs> so we're just trying to pre-fill it for sure, them, yeah, right? Yeah, like, you know, right. good reasonable. intentions, right? Yeah. You know, um, so I, as we're getting closer to WWDC, we got a phone call from Apple and it was John Galenzi on the phone. He's mm-hmm. like, you guys are doing great in the judging for this. Uh, so congratulations. We love your app. We've got a little problem. <laughs> <laughs> you guys do this thing where you get the email address. Can you tell me how you do that? And I'm like calling Jake in the room. Like, Jake, Jake, tell me. What did, what did you do? <laughs> you know, he's like, so we explained it on the, on the phone. He's like, yeah. He's like, that's pretty much so private API. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you can't do that. Like you know, I don't want to ruin your chances for this, but uh, is there anything you can do about that? It's like we can put a new build up right now. Uh, I'll hang up the phone and go make a new build and put that in the store, and we will remove that feature. And they're like, great. Uh, <laughs> so, cool. so we knew. So it was neat. I think a lot of times people don't have any idea. So we had a little bit of a precursor to know that um, we were in a good position mm-hmm. uh, for that. But it's never certain, and I've heard from people 
we were part of the process that sometimes it changes at the last minute. Like yeah, honestly, yeah. day of, there are potentially changes. There are, yeah. I, God knows what considerations all go into this yeah. because it's not just, is it the best app? There's what does Apple oh, want to yeah. highlight? Right, yeah. What, what yeah. politics are involved in? Yeah, well, what knows, secret right? feature no one knew about sure, is now right. revealed and conflicts with the winner? Maybe, yeah, right, you know, sure, I don't yeah. know, right? You know, yeah. I mean, so. Uh, but, but postage uh, absolutely deserved it and was a wonderful. Yeah, I, I love it. I I so loved that was that was one of the funnest things I've ever worked on because we had to push really hard to make that thing fit and work on those phones. I mean, we had oh, no yeah. memory, and we were very graphics and animation intensive right, in that app. Users taking right? a picture and you're yeah, and we have these high res templates that and, Brad made. Yeah. It was also so much fun watching those guys make that app. Um, uh, the well, I mean the the assets for it. Um, so you know. <laughs> So we asked Brad to like make, you know, make as many templates as you can. Right. Uh, you know, basically. Right. And so he just starts going crazy. Like, well, I made my own paper once and I'm gonna use that as a texture, you know, and he's, he and my wife Liz are going to the art store and just shopping for random stuff and coming uh, back and like cutting things out of construction paper or taking photos at the beach. And, you know, just like, it was really awesome watching this. Like, I don't know, it probably was a month, but I, I don't know, maybe it was two week, three week process mm -hmm. of like our conference room turned into Brad's crazy art room. And yeah, like, you know, it's like all cool. these templates are being made. Um, I, I love that, that Brad brings all the physicality yeah, to a yeah. physical UI. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, that he's, he's not just a guy sitting in focus. Exactly. He's yeah. Doing all this. That's yeah. And it, cool. it was fantastic. It was so fun to, I remember there was a comment that Jeff made to me once, like, I'm going to paraphrase it, but it was something like, I don't think I deserve to work on this app. He's like, this, <laughs> this is so cool. I can't believe that, you know, we're creating this thing. No. Um, it was, it was really fun. It was really fun to make, to, to hammer that thing into the phone and to have something that, um, it just felt really good. Like the mm. whole thing, like we worked really hard to make it feel right. And yeah. what was interesting is I think it's all obvious in retrospect, but at the time, it wasn't really obvious how to make iPhone apps. The only examples we had were what Apple did, really, right? right? Sure. And then whatever everyone is pioneering in that first year. But most people were, I mean, to be frank, just writing something as quick as they could and throwing just it on the store and there. hoping, right? Yeah. So, you know, sure. how many of the apps out there were just kind of really just not even well executed mm -hmm. versions of stock widget apps, right? You know? Sure. Yeah. Um, and so it was oh, I think fun. My first version of NetNewsWire on the App Store was a table. Right. Yeah. Right. And, I mean, you just web view. Right. I mean, yeah. Was, yeah. I mean, everyone is is moving fast, and we were super fortunate to have five people who could can, had a block of time who could all contribute. Mm -hmm. So we were able to build some depth into the app, and then of course having Brad, who you know was yeah a genius at, at making those UIs. Right. You know, um, and so it was just a perfect storm of things yeah. that let us kind of crank that out in a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. At least for the development side. I mean, Brad had worked on the designs for a long time. Over. And then what did you charge? Two bucks? <laughs> I think that was a big argument. I think uh, we all had a different opinion. I feel like we started at five. Uh-huh. Okay. Though maybe 10 was really in the right. Because I keep having 10 kind of poke in my head. But I think 499 was the, mm. like, and then by that point, it was already an expensive app. Yeah. Right. right. Like and, that and, was like, you know, and you it's, it's a custom postcard app. Right. And you're like yeah. charging five bucks. I know. Right. Which at the time already seemed cheap enough. And now it's like, are you insane? Oh, you yeah. could never It'd have to be free. Yeah. You would, you'd have, have to, to find be. another way to make money on it. Oh, IAP for templates or something. I guess. Yeah. I, I honestly think that's something we should have explored. Uh, that didn't come around until after postage came out, but that yeah, was, sure. that might've been the very next SDK that came out after mm -hmm. we shipped. And, uh, 
I think that might have been a route, but it would have been a a constant stream of new content. Like yeah, that would have sure. been what the app became was less about features and more about just providing new content. And yeah, I, definitely. But um, but yeah, that was great. I th- I do have one funny anecdote. This is probably all going on too long, but um, I guess we fix that in editing. <laughs> when we were we were at that WWDC, um, Rad and I went to dinner with several of the sofa people Mm. um right before the design award so it's like hey let's all go catch a burger or something over like we went to mel's i think you know like right there right like we were just down there and uh we were eating and and having a great discussion and then i think dirk got a phone call one of them got a phone call and then they're all looking at each other and they're all like we gotta go (laughs) and they take off wow and we're like oh we'll take care of the bill whatever and brad and i are looking at each other like so they won the they won an award and they got a phone call. Uh-huh. And we, our phones are not ringing. <laughs> right? Like why is their phone ringing and our phone's not ringing? Like so at that point I was like ah, probably not going to happen. Oh well, we made it we made it pretty far in the running, still going to be fun. The best part was we were the very last award mm. awarded. So we sat there sweating through the whole uh-huh. thing like maybe maybe there's maybe. one more chance, yeah. maybe. That was a lot of fun though. That was a good WWDC. We might have celebrated yeah, a lot good. of that one. I think I recall some of that. That dimly. Yeah. <laughs> there might be some gaps. I, I think we were at Rickenbacker's <laughs> for a little while. And after yeah, that, it's a I, House of Shields kept coming back. I think yeah, that was the, one of the first years we just sort of gravitated to House yeah. of Shields over and over. Well, we have been talking a while. It's a, This is a long yeah, episode. This is a long episode. Why don't we fast forward up to, uh, let's do Napkin and then... And then. Yeah. Call it a show. Yeah. Yeah. So, so brr, rogue sheep. Yeah. Fast forward rogue sheep. Yeah. We do some more apps. Yeah. Um, we all pretty much so part ways. It takes a little while, but we kind of slowly dribble apart. Um, people land at different places. I ended up um, through a series of events. I've been friends with Guy English for a long time. He and I um, met at C4, I think, is where we really started hanging out. Yeah. For real. It's probably met at WWE. Yeah. And then. Uh, at your birthday party, that mm-hmm. was in Vegas. That oh, was yeah, another sure. time. <clears throat> so we'd always hung out and talked, and and uh, we kind of had collaborated on a thing with Mike Lee that just didn't go anywhere, um, like a poker game for the iPhone. Oh, right, that was like for uh, just a little while. You were United part of that too. Lim- yeah. Lemur, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I didn't, didn't do a liquor. Yeah, we just that. like yeah. we all were just everybody time. doing other yeah. stuff, right? Yeah, exactly, right. Um, and so <clears throat> we, the guy was in an interesting situation in which. Um, he was pretty sure he was going to be part of a bigger new company, a new thing. Mm-hmm. And he had spent all this time writing this app, which was called Whiteboard at the time. Many years writing this app, Whiteboard, and had shown it to me and other people and yeah. talked about it. I think I'd seen some. I'm sure, yeah, because he had some ago. pretty I mean, neat stuff to demo. Forever, yeah. yeah, 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 It really long time. And he's like, <clears throat> I, I was talking to him like, you know, I'm, I'm leaving Rogue Sheep and trying to figure out what the next thing to do is. And he was like, you know, I've got this gig that I'm going to do. And that means I really can't publish this app. Um, mm. So like, I, that's going to kill me to have done all this and never publish it. So maybe you could do that. I'm like, that sounds interesting. Let's mm. plan on that. Not very long after he was like, that gig fell through. Why don't we do this and publish this app? And so we decided to form Asian Distilled and, we took the very ambitious app that he had started off and, and scaled it down to something um, that we felt like we could ship sooner mm. and get out the door polished. Um, and so whiteboard became napkin mm-hmm. and it's been just over a year now that uh, 
I think it was that was getting even for almost a year and a half. We released it last January. Right. Okay. Uh, and uh, been poking along. We've both been doing kind of napkins like a halftime thing for us. So, you know, we're pushing to try to make it a full time thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's been cool. It's been really fun to go back and write uh, a real Mac app. Yeah. Uh, after yeah, doing so much iOS work. Yeah. You know, if you oversimplified, you could say that Rogue Sheep was destroyed by the race to the bottom on the iPhone. Store. I think so. I think it you really know, hurt us. Yeah. If you could have mm-hmm. charged real money and actually yeah. made a living at postage and stuff, right. the company would still be around. Right. Um, so after that experience, you are you're a Mac developer again. Yeah. I think it's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. We've definitely we've set ourselves a policy that you know we want to actually charge real money for the software we make, and mm-hmm. we just we're determined to make it valuable enough that it's worth it. Like we oh, want to make sure. stuff that isn't casual and throwaway, but that has real value for the people. So it's not a problem spending 20, 30, $40 mm-hmm. to solve a problem. Right. You know? Real productivity stuff. Right. right? Yeah. You know, I always look to Omni as yeah. inspiration. Yeah, exactly. You, you yeah. make something super high quality and super useful. Yeah. Yeah. And it's good. Products. I mean, it was funny when we shipped napkin, there was a couple people who just seemed, it's funny. The people that come out of the woodwork are just offended at you. Right. Like they're just like, <laughs> you know, you are an idiot and let me tell you why you are the biggest idiot ever. You will never sell this, you know? And, like well thousands of people already disagree Uh, like i'm like you know so that's great Mm -hmm. you don't have to be a customer but um you know i have a feeling that we might regret having you as a customer anyway yeah (laughs) right but you don't understand i could buy an infinite number of free iphone apps (laughs) for the money that you're charging yeah yeah it's it's kind of nutty and that was usually my response most time i ignored people but every now and then i respond and say you know we're doing this because we want to continue to do it and make it better and the only way we can do that is to put a dollar figure on it that is not 99 cents you know i mean you know i don't know we haven't really played we've we've been very intentionally avoiding ever monkeying with the price of napkin because we don't want to get gimmicky and we don't want to disappoint people who paid the 40 dollars and then like suddenly we're like it's 20 dollars you know um So it, we've been that, pretty it adamant be about so that. It's so risky. You yeah. want your app to be taken seriously. Right. It's a serious right. product and you know, the app. And every, I mean, I wonder sometimes if, you know, could we fine tune our our position by changing the price in either direction? Like, mm-hmm. you know, what, what are we leaving on the table? But there is a part of me that just doesn't want to mess with it. You know, yeah, like sure. that's what this version costs. And when we mess with it, will be the next version. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, you know, that that's when sense. we will play with what we do. Um so, but but it's been pretty successful. I mean, we I, we've got to kick in the marketing. We're working on a real website, and like we have some plans for marketing stuff coming up. And I think that'll it'll be interesting to see how we can apply that. But mm-hmm. we've been fortunate that without us trying very hard, it's done pretty well. Yeah, actually. Oh, that's great. So Agent Distilled is you and Guy. You yep. guys work with a designer. Yeah. Uh, so his good friend for ages is a, a guy named Thomas, and um, Thomas is. Uh, a big part he he because he's interested he hangs out way more than he needs to like with uh with us so he's he's it's like he's the silent partner the the beetle you didn't know or something because uh he he's just there all the time he's he's always willing to put in so much time in our meetings and hanging out and hearing about what we're planning to do and he contributes a lot a lot more than probably fair for someone who's just like the contract designer you know like but uh, um but he's been a big part of it definitely and he's always kind of our first line of you know testing right mm-hmm. you know he's the oh, one who's yeah, like you know first right like mm-hmm. you know here's what we're gonna do try it out and he'll let us know when we miss the target and, and when things just don't make any sense you know mm-hmm. 
what we'll do is end this um, end this episode on you making everyone jealous. Yeah. All our listeners jealous. You are going to the World Cup. Yes. Yeah. In fact, yeah, I've got just a tiny bit more work to do to secure all the amazing amount of things you have to do to travel to Brazil. But uh, I was... I was a little worried that I was going to miss WWDC, but uh, it all worked out so that uh, I'll be in San Francisco in the end of June in Brazil, or at the beginning of June in Brazil at the end of June. Yeah. So. so it's like a raffle. and Yeah, so to get tickets, and- yeah, you you know, each country gets awarded a certain number of tickets. The host country gets the mm-hmm. majority of them. But um, so you have to just apply, essentially, uh, okay. for the games that you're interested in. Uh, and then they have some sort of random process. Now people accuse FIFA of corruption all the time, so who knows, maybe. Maybe I bribe somebody to get that ticket. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we got you, tickets. If, if bribery going were an option, you probably wouldn't be able to afford the bribe. I'm sure I wouldn't. I don't think I can afford this trip, honestly. Like if I had <laughs> known how much it cost to go to Brazil during the World Cup, I might not have ever put my name in the hat. Uh, it is insane. Like mm-hmm. they're they're charging a lot for um, because they can because you know it's sure. it's all constrained, right? There's not enough capacity for mm-hmm. everything Spine that's demand, coming yeah. in, right? Yeah. And uh, airfare is crazy and. Mm. You've got a. We have this fantastic uh, situation where you must <clears throat> get a visa to go to Brazil as a U.S. citizen because uh, they're reciprocating some sort of terrible treatment we do to Brazilians incoming. And so, but what's great for to the, everybody, though, yeah, right? They shouldn't take it personally, right? Yeah. Well, for some reason, there's something specific with Brazil. I don't know is what really? it is that we do on huh. this side, but because of what we do, they enacted a you must have a visa that costs like 160 dollars, yeah, okay. kind of thing, to come in. But what's fortunate is of course for the world cup they're like hey you don't have to pay for it but you still have to get the visa so mm-hmm. it's this like multi-week ordeal where as mm-hmm. a resident of seattle we have to go to the consulate in san francisco ah. to get the visa or have someone do it on our behalf and right. it's just super complicated <clears throat> but eventually i will be in brazil watching people bat a little ball around with their foot yeah that's soccer nerds. chris will be there <laughs> It's going to be awesome. You know, I think people should also be jealous because at this very moment, I'm sitting in the room where NetNewsWire was born, right? <laughs> I've been working in this office since 1999. Yep. Almost everything I've done has been in the yeah. same room. Yeah. I think that's uh, yeah. that may make more of our audience jealous, I think, than uh, World Cup. You know what? It's just, just a room. <laughs> it's fantastic, though. You got it. Play. Yeah, I love my, the Eddie's over there. Yeah, those are sweet. Those are yeah. real awards, man. Those have some heft uh, to them, yeah, right? They are. You could could hurt somebody. Yeah, Adobe had a couple behind a case in uh, the Seattle mm-hmm. office from all these days. Really, they were yeah. they were all these ones. All right. Well, uh, the record.co is where you can find the show notes and and all our other awesome episodes from the past. Yeah, and you should probably go there because the show notes are probably really really long because uh, we have a habit of trying to be comprehensive with those. Yeah, definitely visit the show notes if you haven't. Brent is uh, a monster with those things. Um, I go visit them after because it's awesome to go see the links for the things we talked about. It's so much fun to do. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoy it. Those are great. Well, also, uh, we have some fantastic sponsors for their specials here. Yeah. Go check Uh, those guys out. Moonrisesoftware.net slash tagcaster. Go to hover.com, igloosoftware.com slash the record. And listeners, we'll be back in two weeks with another special.